0: The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch for reviewing of our show homes a brochure, or for more information. Let BRB Homes take the stress out of your build. Check out brbhomes.ie Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold! give it a try at slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Big News Coming Soon podcast. This week I'm joined by a man called Darren Cawley. Darren is a man I met on my adventure weekend in Westport last year. I held an adventure weekend where I brought 150 people to Westport and we went and done various activities. And Darren was our tour guide. You brought us all around, Darren. You came on the bus with us and you told us uh, some very interesting things. And then on the Sunday morning you brought us on a tour of Westport. So that's how I know you. But you're known for many other things and you have many feathers in your cap. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Okay, yeah, Darren from Westport, born and reared. Uh, A very typical little Irish uh, upbringing. Uh, No problems, everything went well. School I enjoyed, secondary school I was kind of pretty invisible. I was a small little guy who loved sports, Uh, had plenty of friends and good family. You know, everything was great. Uh, When I decided to go to college I wanted to go and do sports or history and I got into University of Bedfordshire, kind of north of London and I went there and I was having a fantastic time doing a degree
1: in sports and fitness studies. What made you go to England? That was a big decision to leave Ireland and go to England and, and had you been abroad much growing up or anything?
2: Very, very little. The reason I went to England was quite simple. I got poor career advice, career guidance advice, and I didn't pick a foreign language. And if you didn't pick a foreign language, you couldn't go off and do teaching. You couldn't do sports studies because back then there wasn't all these GMIT equivalents. It was all universities. And so the only way I could do sports, which I really wanted to do, was to go to England.
1: Was there nowhere in Ireland? No,
2: not without French as a language. And I hadn't French. Wow and was
1: that was that a tough decision to make
2: i don't know i just got caught up in the whole thing i i again i was kind of very quiet and i was just <laughs> tipping along and yet had to fill out the forms and oh don't forget you can go to england and english forms the all the prospectuses looked class you know and sport is kind of the only thing i had much of an interest in i wasn't an ambitious boy in any way shape or form and so my career guidance was very basic you know my father had a He'd started out a taxi and bus business. Uh, So they were saying you should do business or you could do this. But I knew nothing of business, really. It was just a small thing at the time. And the only thing, like I played boxing, rugby, Gaelic, soccer. We'd cycle up to the local village most evenings to play handball and racquetball. I had Connacht titles in handball and boxing. So I was kind of, I was pretty athletic, pretty fit. And so sport just made perfect sense.
1: And what job would you do then after that?
2: Well, you'd work in gyms and you'd work in leisure centres. I, I, I often tell the lighthearted story that we went to Kylemore Abbey once when I was younger.
1: For and anyone I mean, who doesn't know Kylemore mm-hmm. Abbey, tell us a little bit about that first.
2: Kylemore Abbey at the time was an all-girls school where the elite of Europe would go to study, and a lot of Irish and a few locals would go there too. And when I was there, I saw them playing. It's not is it polo? Oh, the sticks and the gra- and the kind of nice grass with the horses. No, not polo. Sorry, with the hockey. All oh, right, Hockey, and I was enthralled, yeah. so I often say I, I, that's the reason I did P.E., so I could come back and be a P.E. teacher in Kylemore Abbey. Wow. Yeah, that was my ambition, my adolescent <laughs> ambition, I think.
1: And Kylemore Abbey's only out the road, and I didn't know that it was a college.
2: Oh, yeah, some very, very famous people went to school there. It was taken over by the nuns in 1917 and kind of bit into the history. And is it, is it still the, a college? It's a semi-college now. It's not a girl's school anymore like it used to be. It's connected with... Uh, american irish university called notre dame
1: it's one of the biggest it's like one of the biggest tourist attractions on the galway mayo border isn't it
2: i think it's the biggest tourist attraction in the west of ireland yeah i believe that i think most people come to Westport or galway to see the site to see that view of kyle abbey which is spectacular okay it's a beautiful location
1: right so you wanted to work in gyms or be a p.e teacher yeah and how long were you going to spend in england doing that
2: it was a three-year degree in sports and fitness studies and when i arrived i was i knew zero people my mother stayed with me for the first two days in student accommodation just that's to get lovely. in it was well that's i was a quiet sort of fella and uh, i always remember the first day i struggled I, I went into college and coincidentally i happened to be wearing a freebie at a telecom errand or something like that some sort of random irish t-shirt Right, and different people come up to me you know oh you're Irish so am I is this your first day (laughs) yeah Danny was his name Uh, did you hear there's a pub down the road
1: was it a telethon t-shirt by any chance it could
2: be telethon or something like that do you remember that yeah and uh, we went to a pub called Eddie's and we spent the day drinking I was like a little giddy schoolboy, like pointing out drinks on the top shelf because I'd never really been away or indulged overly in alcohol in the odd time
1: and now if your mother came to college with you for the first two days you'd be like oh no go away mom." yeah yeah, yeah, but you had a good relationship with them
2: Oh, great my relationship with my family Like, yeah, yeah, yeah And that just seemed to be You're going to a foreign country You're a bit, I was a bit in green and naive Yeah And uh, I was thrown in at the deep end You know, it was a great idea on paper But suddenly you're getting a flight to England And you're put into dorms with four strangers Yeah And so, yeah, my mother came two days before And a day or two days She definitely stayed a day or two And just to set up And show me how to use a washing machine And things like that, I guess Wow how um, many's in your family?
1: I have four sisters. Oh, you're the only boy and four sisters? Yes, yes. Was that tough? That was... Where are you on the pecking order, first of I'm all? I'm second. You're second. So was that tough, living with four girls? I, I, it
2: went pretty much unnoticed. Like, a lot of people credit the fact that I'm so big into sport as that I would use any excuse to get out of the house, <laughs> really. <laughs> and there may be some truth to that. What age are you now? I am in my mid-40s nearly. Mid-40s, yeah. M- Mid-40s.
1: I say early to mid, but I'm closer to mid, yeah. Okay. And what age were you when you went to England then? 17, 18? Eight, uh, 19. 19? Uh, yeah,
2: I was, I was 19 in February, yeah.
1: And how was the... How, you were two years into your four-year course. How was it going for you? The course was pretty simple. Were you loving it?
2: I was embarrassed to say that I had about eight hours in college a week. And the rest was kind of like, as they call it, that was the skeleton and you fill up the rest yourself. But I just passed all my exams. I had some spectacular friends. Great, great friends over there. It was just a group of Irish. We all got together. We started a Gaelic football team in the University of Luton, Bedfordshire's call now. And uh, we went off travelling to different places. Uh, some of the friends, I had connections in London. We used to go down there and I'd work maybe all day on a Saturday. What did a- you work at? Building, building. Like. And I was the weakest, weakest piss. But, but you must <laughs> have been fit. Well I was pretty fit Yeah
1: But not strong
2: But not strong at all
1: For throwing yeah. up buckets of stuff
2: Yeah I'd have been a, a straw weight In terms of boxing I'd be the skinniest little fella But like I, I You know that was it You worked till lunchtime Then you went to, You know there was a bit of gambling And drinking Not that I was into that But just you go and have a few drinks and
1: Were you loving life in London? It,
2: it seemed pretty good yeah yeah, yeah. It was a it was a fantastic time. I suppose we, at the time you don't appreciate how good you had it. No, no, no. But I think back very fondly. of Playing football during the day, going to the pub, playing pool, not drinking all the time, just playing pool yeah. with a few guys between classes. An Irish bar, you get to know everyone. Everyone knows you. Very homely, really. Start those Gaelic team in the school, Gaelic teams outside the school. So it felt very relaxed, very incredibly happy time. So you're
1: always at something. Yeah. So what happened then two years into your course?
2: Uh, around Easter, I started to get a lot of headaches, really bad headaches. There was a few different signs that I ignored. I wasn't as fit as I should have been. I used to go running with a friend, Paddy, and he was slightly heavier than me. But yet, he was fitter than me. And it wasn't making any sense. I had started boxing again, you know, trying to get back into shape. And I just hadn't the fitness I should have had. And then I was getting these awful, awful headaches a lot of the day and at night time. And that progressed for a while, and then my eyesight started to get bad. I started to get these black dots over my eyes. Over, over what period of time? I'd say weeks, and it could have been months, but it only felt like a few weeks. Headaches, you put it off to going out the odd night and not getting enough rest, maybe. But then the, the eyesight thing kind of got ridiculous. I ended up walking past friends in the street. I couldn't read properly. And the final straw was we were at Gaelic training and I jumped up to catch a ball. It slipped through my hand and whacked me in the face. And everybody had a great laugh at my expense. And embarrassment sent me to the college doctor. Because my worst case scenario, I thought I might need glasses. Hmm. You know, I had this West of Ireland attitude, you know, walk it off. Nothing wrong with you, carry on. And I put things off for far too long. It could have been months actually, yeah, when I think back now.
1: All right. So do you remember going to the college doctor that day? Yeah. And Went
2: into the college doctor, uh, around Easter I said, headaches, my vision isn't
1: great. Uh, You're a typical man though, like we put it off until we can't put it off anymore. Couldn't put it off anymore, because I couldn't read properly my books for anything. Uh, the doctor said,
2: headaches, blurred vision, yeah, yeah, We'll maybe see an optician. So she totally blanked me, she just told me to get out of here. She right. assumed I was trying to get out of my exams, which of course I was trying to get out of my exams, but I was... Not joking
1: Right So did you you go to an optician I
2: got an optician's appointment Maybe three or four days later On a Saturday And we had a Gaelic match At six o'clock My appointment was at around two And after two or three minutes This Indian guy Looking in my eyes Two or three minutes only He handed me a letter And he said I need you to go to the hospital Straight away Wow Yeah And I said Oh uh, yeah Absolutely I'll definitely get there next week But I have a Gaelic match this evening So I have to go to that He said No 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 sir I will pay for your taxi You need to go right away and uh, that was an important thing that he did. Yeah, I remember He paid for your taxi? Him. Yeah, he offered to pay for it, you know, but I was cheap, so I just got a bus. And uh, I went into a wo- uh, Luton and Dunstable hospital, went into a waiting room with, oh, there must have been 25 people in the waiting room, typical A&E waiting room. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person to be called in. So whatever he had written on that bit of paper was pretty persuasive. You don't know? I have no idea. No idea.
1: So an, an, op- an optician... Sent you to the hospital. Yeah. And whatever was written on that, you jumped the queue. Jumped the queue. Straight in.
2: Yeah. And I remember on a phone box, because it's kind of before mobile, so we're just coming in 98, I rang my parents and said, uh, you know, oh, they, he sent me to the hospital, but everything is fine, because I physically felt pretty okay. You know, I was fine. Uh, I'll give you a shout later, because I have a Gaelic match, and they were doing more tests on my eyes. And somehow... At the back of my eyes, it felt like it went into my throat and I started gagging, this dye or something. And after I started gagging and I got sick a little bit, they said, brought me into another room and someone checked my blood pressure. And that's when a different reality kind of struck me there. The blood pressure was so high. It was incredibly high. They put me lying down. They said, the reason your eyes are bad is because the blood pressure was so high, it was popping blood vessels in your eyes. So something like 190 over 121 or something like that. So very high blood pressure. So you
1: had gone to the college GP and she didn't even take your blood pressure. She did nothing. That's a, that's like a standard thing to do though, isn't it? Just take somebody's blood pressure. Yeah, it was. I w- I was told
2: in the hospital that should be revisited. You should uh, investigate that further and do something about it. But again, we're just after getting. Pretty bad news and the mind. We're not that type of people. You know, we didn't go down that road.
1: Okay, so go on anyway. You were told the, the blood vessels were popping. Yeah, so
2: I was put lying down. My parents had to be called and it's great. I sometimes tell this story in schools where they wheeled a the phone into me to dial the number because mobiles weren't st- on the go as much. This is like an episode of Heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, I was going back that far, <laughs> it felt like. And uh, yeah, I, I told ma'am, I said, uh, you know, they're a bit worried here about a few things, but I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. And then the doctor went on the phone privately and said, this boy could have a stroke at any time. We need an extra kin here as soon as possible. This is not a joke. This is a very serious situation. Uh, we're going to move him to a specialist hospital. Get
1: here quick. Um, Did they tell you the condition or what were they putting it down to? They didn't know, really. They just like, knew that Over the next few days, they did all the tests. They just knew something was wrong. Yeah, and wrong big time. And were you nervous when they had called your parents?
2: No. No, again, I'm a sports and fitness study student. So there couldn't be anything wrong with me. I might need glasses.
1: That was... You thought they were overreacting. Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with me. So you were moved then to a specialist hospital? Stevenage, yeah. What happened then? After a few days, as what
2: often happens in these... Ho- they did all the tests and uh, maybe three days later, doctor, Dr. John, and a, like 10 other people that felt like around him came to the bedside and said, we're very sorry. You have chronic end-stage renal failure. And that, didn't worry me in the least because I had never heard of any of them words I didn't know what he meant and then he said your kidneys are failing and my mother was beside me at the time and she burst out crying and I was I didn't really I didn't really cop on to what was going on I was this can't be right and I asked the one question that I often am I going to die and he said no 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 no, no. there's plenty of we have avenues here you'd probably end up on dialysis and again I'd never heard the word dialysis before. Didn't know what it meant. What does it mean? A whole world of pain and suffering is what it went on to mean. They had to, that day, they kind of, we can't get your blood pressure down. We have to start dialysis. Your body is toxic. It's full of waste because your kidneys aren't working. So they put a tube, they were supposed to put a tube into my neck as an access point to start this dialysis process. But that didn't work. So they had to put it in my groin. And that was just mentally incredibly uncomfortable to have people down in that area uh, trying to find a vein in your leg to to connect up to this machine which is going to keep me alive for the foreseeable future. So it it was a horrible time. I had an allergic reaction the first time I went on it. I started feeling faint. I couldn't breathe properly. And it was just not a fun experience. That was my introduction. I often say, like, I went from a healthy sports and fitness study student to someone with kidney
1: failure in about a week. But, but it I wasn't guess. a week really though you were, you just, Oh no You kept putting it off And putting it off
2: Yeah but I just Again
1: Would anything have changed If you went in sooner Possibly
2: yeah Yeah they, it, It's the kind of It was an illness That was inheriting me maybe And eventually I might have went on You know after 20, 30, 40 years Controlled the blood pressure Some steroids Some this, some that And they could have Put it off
1: was your mum and dad there or just your mum? No, just my mother, just my mother. So she had to find <coughs> digs then in London and... Well, she stayed in my place, I guess. Oh, and right. I was, Yeah, yeah. And she stayed for quite a long time. How long were you in hospital?
2: I don't really remember. Uh, probably a few weeks until the, the thing settled down. Uh, but that was difficult. I had five, four, three younger sisters. And an older. my older sister was off in college. And, uh, but my younger sisters were still in secondary school. And my father was running a business, trying to run a business, and I was gone, and my mother's gone, and and I was life or death, <clears throat> as far as anyone in Ireland it's like the, the amount of masses that were said, yeah, mass cards, prayers, enormous amounts of that kind of stuff was going on. Darren, Meanwhile, Darren's I was living in, hospital. in Darren's in hospital. The only son, like my father, found it tough and emotional, and uh, it was, it was. But I was in England, kind of going, this is all a mistake. Any minute now, they're gonna realise. I didn't physically feel very sick so like what's wrong with you like come on sort it out Was your mum working at the time or was she a housewife? She was a housewife who did work with the taxi yeah Yeah Because it was a little family business you know you, Well a housewife is the,
1: the greatest job of all isn't it like a well, Yeah
2: we had a, as I said we had a spectacular upbringing like a very comfortable cosy upbringing Because of no money but like we didn't want for anything Yeah
1: yeah and she was busy god she was busy that's a big family
2: that's a typical family, maybe. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, all <laughs> okay. my friends would have five, six, three, four, four kids. But I had grandmother down the road, I had neighbours, Derek's up the road. I used to go farming every day, Yeah. you know, off playing in the fields, really. Kind and of, of course, stuff. with your mum
1: <clears throat> being a housewife and minding everyone at home, when she was gone from that, things must have changed drastically at home. I imagine so. But mm. I was in a, I wasn't
2: kind of cognizant of any of that. I was in a, I know, a different world. I, I was in a, I don't really remember much about it. I often hear about it later. Like my father two or three weeks later f- finally came over. He was kind of half afraid nearly to see what my son has become. But I when he came in the door he's I was sitting up in bed eating and he gave me a little hug, we'll say, and uh, he just started eating. He hadn't eaten for two weeks really. Were you close with your
1: dad? Yeah, we are, yeah. <laughs> but are you like are you loving, like are you kind of Oh a, no, 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 no. A typical Irish, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pat on uh, the back. Yeah, no, walk in the shoulder, yeah. 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 But you, you don't
2: need to be told in families like that. You know how you, you know the relationship. It's perfect. Yeah. I don't need, some f- people need words. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't need. You don't. How did you get out of hospital then? Uh, I got out of hospital. I didn't get out of hospital. I did and I didn't. Every two days I had to do this dialysis. So essentially, they say laughingly, I had to go and visit my kidneys in a hospital. So every, I think it was Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I had to go for dialysis.
1: Every second day, like pretty much? Pretty much, yeah.
2: In and out? Oh, well, for four or five hours. like Three hours on the actual machine, three to four hours on the machine. But you had to go in and get set up and take blood pressure and weigh yourself because, again, if your kidneys aren't working, there's nothing in your bladder, which means you, anything you drink stays inside you. So I had to learn all this new language, you know.
1: And then, of course, you weren't allowed <clears> to play any sport or do anything.
2: Ah, m- mentally, I was, wasn't in a great place. Like, you leave the hospital that first time with a treatment plant. But the treatment plan is a physical plan. Physiologically now, we have everything under control. Take these tablets, do that. But when I walked out of the hospital, my degree in sports, pff, waste of time, broke up with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, total apathy, really, to everything. Like, life as I knew it. My whole planned out existence. Kylemore Abbey, the dream was gone. You know, everything was just on the ground. And they don't... They only treat the physical aspects of a disease. They don't treat all these mental and emotional turmoil that I was going through. It's just there you go you're off you go so you had to
1: stay in london to go through all this treatment
2: i had to stay yeah in i well i decided the hospital i was in was a specialist hospital they were excellent they were really really good yeah and so why go home really to mayo to castle Bar? nothing wrong with the treatment there but like these were specialists and i was just after starting and i had a final year in college will i continue so after the summer i decided to to finish off my final year so you went back to college then I went back to college while on dialysis. It was messy. Uh, again,
1: zero ambition. But I'm, I, I presume there was fitness tests in your course, was there? Or?
2: Well, I wasn't too bad physici- physically. You, you were know. still able to do the I was still able to do bits and pieces. It was more of an academic uh, course, you know, and uh, I had these big tubes coming out of my chest for the dialysis. So I couldn't go swimming or anything like that. But um I look at it, I just wanted to pass everything and that's all I did, I just passed, I just got my basic degree So what happened next? I came back to Ireland and it was a, <laughs> it was a bit of a homecoming because everyone thought I was on death's door really I should have died and all these kind of legends and fables about the different things that happened to me in hospital So people came into, the, they nearly crept into the house to see me you know
1: Well there was no social media, <coughs> Nothing. nobody knew and I'm sure arms and legs were put onto stories Yeah when All da-
2: through the landline That that was it <laughs> All through the landline When yeah. Darren
1: was in hospital Yeah And
2: Well when I got home Like as I said People came into the house Mass cards I had to open loads of cards And That's uh, lovely though it was oh, it's a lovely thing I still have statues at home Religious statues and that From people So you know It means a lot And there is some sort of power in that That we can't explain But yet it, I think it has some meaning That I certainly wouldn't cast out and I used to play tricks on people. When they come in, I'd put a hoodie on and I'd, I'd shrivel up like this. And then I'd jump out of the chair. And they just you see them light up and give me a big hug. And, you know, it just shows the family of community and family. You know, it's 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 very strong. It's very That's, alive in the west of Ireland, I think. But it's
1: probably gone <laughs> a lot now because of social media. Now, yeah. you'd get a message saying, how are you? hope you're well. But there'd be yeah. the little meaning to it. Whereas going out buying a mask card and... Those kind of things. And calling and the Visiting house, people. Yeah. visiting people, yeah. It's such a pity that has isn't a <sighs> thing And I, I
2: have very fond memories of that. Going into my grandmother's, people coming to visit all the time. I very much want to recreate that as I grow older in the house, you know, to have that sense of community wherever I live. Yeah. And
1: what did you go at then when you came home?
2: What did I go about? Wow. Well, I. So you're what age now? About <clears> 23? <throat> at 21, 22, really. Uh, I did. What did I do? How, I you did,
1: fe- how are you feeling now at this stage?
2: Uh, okay, yeah, still still in disbelief, still burying my head mentally in the sand, just going day-to-day.
1: Physically, how are you feeling?
2: Fine. Yeah, dialysis wasn't too severe on me. Maybe because I was young and fit, it gave me a good advantage. Uh, I started working in, what was it? Initially, it was actually with Special Olympics. So the year Special Olympics was coming to Ireland, I worked with Special Olympics the year before. So they had a big push to try and encourage more people with... Uh, disabilities and the different schools involved special needs schools as they were called and uh, I helped out for a year with Special Olympics which was fantastic incredibly draining though because I was tired anyway because I also worked as a PE teacher in St Anthony's and St Breed's special schools for a year as essentially a PE teacher and again some of the some of the the disabilities the illnesses them kids had were profound like for some kids I used to just hold their hand and walk around the room that was PE. And I suppose that was the beginning of a, a certain element of gratitude.
1: Did you choose to go in, go down the special needs route? Not at all. Yeah. Everything in life that's happened to me... It just, just kind of came a, up, was it? It just came up, yeah. it was. Uh, because that's another job and a half altogether. Yeah. That's a, yeah. T- like, that's a devotion, like it's not... You have to be cut out for it, don't you?
2: You have to be, but I suppose I was developing this sense of humility uh, and gratitude through being alive going through this adversity and then you meet when you're in hospitals no matter how bad you are you always meet someone worse off than you it's very humbling like one of my favorite stories which taught me a great deal was that I was going in to get what's called a fistula so part of dialysis is where they connected my arm they connected my artery and the vein in my arm together and that created this buzz this kind of pounding which made the vein grow larger And now on dialysis, when I was doing dialysis, they put in two big fat needles into my arm. So the blood would be sucked out of one needle into the machine where it was cleaned, filtered, drained, and then the blood would go back in the other needle.
1: They're built into your arm?
2: It's built into my arm. They had an operation to connect the artery and the vein together. And the vein isn't designed to take pressure. Oh, I'm weak. You're going to get weaker. Oh, Jesus. So I now have this very large vein in my arm. It's my party piece as such.
1: I, I saw you doing this in Westport. Yeah. So you were going around when when we had our guests in Westport and you were telling your story on the bus. You gave people the opportunity to feel your wrist. Yeah. What do they feel in your wrist? Did you not feel it? I didn't because we, we've we been talking about this podcast for so long <laughs> and every time I saw you doing it, I said, I want to wait until the podcast to do it. But what, So finish telling us what's in your arm first of all. So again,
2: when they connect to the artery and the vein together, they kind of tie them together and there's a gap between one to the other. So the pressure, the pounding from the artery going into the vein, made the vein grow larger. Because the vein is designed to slowly bring blood back to the heart. But in this case, it was turned into an artery. The reason for that is when they take out the needle and you hold it for a good while, and that's important, but when you hold it, a scab forms and it heals naturally. So normally I used to have a tube in my chest for about a year. And uh, that's not you've, it's an access point for infection and disease. So this is the, this is the most effective way to do dialysis. So now, are you still on dialysis? No, I'm not on dialysis at the moment, no. no. But I still, the, the, I didn't have an operation to remove this. I've had enough, I feel, enough operations. Now it is potential dangerous, like when they were taking out the needles and I held my finger on them, if I didn't hold my hand tight, blood would come out. And a lot of blood. I've seen blood sprayed on ceilings and walls. Jesus, Darren. I've been driving the car home one day and I felt this wetness in my arm. And it was just pumping blood all down my arm. I'd pull her in the middle of the road and stand there or wait in the car until the blood stopped. Yeah. I were, won't tell you half of the stories. Were I you have. afraid? No, not no, not afraid. you'd be afraid you'd fall asleep. And if you fall asleep and move the needle and it started bleeding, it might you you could lose a lot of blood before an alarm on the machine would go off or uh, before one of the nurses would come over. Now that that doesn't really happen because I've been in Castlebar Hospital, you know, maybe about 1700 times on dialysis. And I know the nurses and they're incredibly capable, experienced and uh, emphatic empathy. They have huge empathy to the patient. So it's, uh, I very much trust the healthcare team.
1: So what's the name of this thing then in your wrist? A fistula. A fistula. A fistula. A fistula. And you could have it removed, but you don't want to?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't need, feel the need to have any more operations than I need to. I'm not a good patient, Alan, believe it or not. Oh, I, I'm the same. Yeah, I, you're like I was listening to Lisa, like, you know, and I was kind of recount some of her stories, you know, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, you're on about morphine drips. And yeah, I had the drip.
1: When I was talking to Lisa, <laughs> I was thinking, I don't even want to get a filling in my tooth next week. <laughs> yeah. And this poor lady has had open heart surgery twice. Yeah. But you had the you had the, the button for the morphine. Did you? I had
2: the button. Yeah. And it said every seven minutes you can press that button to alleviate pain. I just my finger never left it. I'm not taking any chances, we're getting ahead of ourselves, yeah, let's not go there for.
1: can I feel your fistula? Let's do it right, so I'm gonna move my microphone over here now, and I am going to so there's a little lump on your wrist here, oh my God, so it's just like a little vibration in your wrist that's very um that's a very strange sensation, so you've got a lump on your arm and it's gone the whole way from your wrist up to your to your elbow almost, yeah. and it's just like. It's just like a little vibration all the time. It's that constant buzzing. Yeah,
2: I don't feel it anymore. Like, no, if I put this up to my ear, you hear.
1: Can you put it up to the microphone just to see? Oh, I wonder. Put it up to the microphone there. Hang on, I'll turn it up for a second. Wait a second, I'm going to turn yours right up to the last. Oh my God, you can hear it clearly. Can you? Yeah.
2: Oh, it's there. There's no denying it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So, thousands of people over the years have felt that fistula. <laughs> and some have fainted. I've often lost people. They've I've fainted thought. by, by oh, feeling it. People, yeah. I could yeah, understand well, that now listening because... Listening the story and the different triggers.
1: No, I can't deal with blood or anything like that, so I can understand that. Right, so let's go back to your working with the Special Olympics, which must have been a pretty big thing because you wanted to work in sports and then getting the opportunity to work with Special Olympics is yeah. pretty big.
2: It was. There was that, and I suppose in around that time, I I also, like, as soon as I came home, I went on the transplant waiting list. And believe it or not, within about nine months, I got the phone call. this is a whole other story. This is, you know, the power of this, what's called the gift of life, we know it as. And I got a call. I was on the waiting list. I had a beeper, and I ended up getting a mobile phone. And in January, uh, the phone rang one morning, I answered it, and it said... Hello, is this Darren? Yeah, Darren, we think we have a kidney for you. Can you get to Dublin immediately? And I was kind of half asleep and I got, up, I, was, I got up and started walking towards the toilet and my f- mother or father, one of them was in the room, I was living at home and I just handed them the phone and I went to the toilet and said, no, no, are you serious?
1: Yeah, yeah. And But this was always the plan, was it? To get always a kidney the plan. Kidney I transplant. went
2: on the waiting list immediately. The kidney transplant is the best form of treatment.
1: You went on it when you came home to Ireland immediately?
2: Immediately, yeah. And it wasn't an option in England? Well, no, because the plan was to come over to
1: Ireland anyway as soon as possible. So how long were you mm-hmm. home before you got the phone call? Roughly, was yeah, it? Yeah,
2: six, nine months, six to seven months. Not Which long, was very then. quick. Yeah. Or oh, ridiculously quick. And uh, wow, here we go. We're off to Dublin. My uncle was a guard and we rang him and we had a police escort through the city, which was terrific because I had no fear. I'm going to have a transplant. This is a new lease of life. This is the gift of life. You know. You had
1: no fear at all about having that operation?
2: I didn't. I never looked into it. I didn't even pack a bag like you're supposed to. What age were you? I was 20, 22, I would think. Yeah,
1: probably 22, just gone. That's incredible that you had no fear. Was that naivety? Very much so. Absolutely naivety, yeah. So you got to Luke and then, was it around there, you got the guard Escort him? Well, even
2: before that, yeah. yeah. Nice. <clears throat> Which is the, it was distracting. And you pull up and you go up to the ward. And like, maybe three or four people are often called because some people aren't suitable. If I had a cold that day or if there was a little viral infection or anything like that, they take all these different measurements, your blood type, tissue type, antigens, antibodies, current state of health, loads of different markers. And myself and another guy got the green light. And next morning we got the kidney transplant. Yeah and everyone says oh that must have been amazing well no you're just after having a huge operation you've got tubes coming out of places where no tube should ever go were you in ICU then initially yeah 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 and then you're brought into a specialist ward for for transplants and that and uh, slowly but surely you start to recover but like you've got 24 staples down your stomach the kidney is put into the stomach area and uh, well that plenty of challenges with that but uh, thankfully in my case it worked
1: And at any stage then did you say Shite this is pretty serious Or were you just kind of going along with it
2: I, I very much was just going along with it yeah I wasn't very uh, a conscious person about illness I was just very okay. much just living, living day to day
1: Because I'm the opposite I would be absolutely freaking out yeah, I, You'd have to drag me to Dublin kicking and screaming I wouldn't be able to just get on with it like that so you woke up then and you were coming round, and I'm assuming the pain was excruciating.
2: No, not at all. You're you're drugged up to the last, yeah. So it's only slowly but surely they take off the drugs, you start your physio. The next day you have to stand up, you have to start, it, they cut through all the muscles in your stomach. So yeah, if you don't stand up straight, pretty much straight away after a day or two, you know, your muscles start to build and grow in that crooked position. So yeah, the physios are the people you hate the most <laughs> during that time because they get you up walking twice a day. They get you breathing properly. They get you moving. And it's very hard because you're in pain. You know, every, you don't want to hurt. You don't want to move anything. You've got a tube coming out of your private area. Another tube in my neck, tubes in my hands. You know, it's a horrible place to be. Looking back, oh, it's great. Best thing ever, getting a transplant. But at the time, if you asked me, I, I probably would never have wanted to do it again. Oh, I'm a sissy. Yeah, I don't deny it. <laughs> I hate pain.
1: Well, you're clearly not. You're clearly not No
2: it's a different I, I, I'm very bad in hospitals And like I've had loads of operations I've had people sticking needles in my liver Doing all this stuff while you're awake And I'd often faint But i just tell them Do whatever you have to do Don't mind me You know mentally I'm not in a good place But that doesn't matter Just do it I'll feel better when you're finished
1: That's incredible
2: Yeah you have to You, you have to let the healthcare team Do whatever they have to do
1: How long were you in hospital <clears throat> for then Roughly Around two weeks And you got home then
2: I Got home then And you know it's a, it's a different life you know, the following year, I got to go to what's called the World Transplant Games. Before that,
1: <laughs> why, why is it a different life? What changed?
2: I'm not going into hospital every two days. So then you, you suddenly start thinking about all your dreams and goals and ambitions. You start going away for weekends with friends. You, all these things are possible now. You can live a normal life. And when you're sick, you don't want anything but to be normal, to be like everyone else.
1: Did you ever think about where your kidney came from?
2: not not really at the time i was still very kind of naive and just 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 get it over with get it done stop thinking like a sick person move away from that right and uh it was hard i was still very immature 21 22 you know i wasn't a very conscientious person i guess
1: do you think about it now mm-hmm. well there's more to the story alan Oh right Yeah Okay so let, let's, let's keep going then With the next yeah, part Yeah yeah I got
2: to go We'll say it briefly The transplant games in Japan And this is where I really felt that I've, n-
1: uh, I've never heard of the transplant games The
2: world transplant games So if you had a heart transplant Liver transplant Lung transplant And the whole idea behind the games Is to show The health benefits Of having a transplant Of promoting donor awareness
1: Is this like the Olympics <coughs> Of people that have had transplants
2: Exactly what it is
1: So in a, in, <laughs> in a roundabout way This is almost a dream come true for you
2: Absolutely now, my friends used to call it the Spare Parts Olympics. <laughs> so be, we always take it lightheartedly. Like, the, the, the qua- quality wasn't always enormously high. Although some people, it was very high. Like, one, re- one event I did was cycling. And I love cycling. I used to cycle to school every day, and i do all cycling. So I was fit. So I decided I'd go to the Transplant Games and do cycling. Get a bike and do a bit of training. I didn't do a lot of training. Because in the hospital, the average age of someone is maybe 60 to 70 years old. So I assumed... The World Transplant Games be full of old people, and I was going out to Japan. I get to see a bit of the country, and sure, I'd probably win the fucking thing. You know, <laughs> that was my kind of thinking. Declam off Declamapha stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I arrive off on my new bike. And uh, did you bring a bike from Ireland? Yeah. Where did you get that? That was I was working at the time. I was working in what's called the Atlantic Coast Hotel. It's now the Coast Hotel, and they sponsored the bike for me.
1: No way. Yeah,
2: very grateful. I still have the bike. My dad does use it a lot. I hate it. I never liked it. Wasn't that
1: it. incredible?
2: Yeah, all people were very generous and helpful to me. You know. And they, was it
1: an expensive bike? It must I have I think been.
2: it was 550 euro or yeah, euro. A lot of money back then. It really was, yeah.
1: That was like a three grand bike to us now. It was
2: a huge gift to get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh myself and another guy called Pat Dunning, who had a heart transplant. He used to run a pub in town. Passed away sadly a few years ago, like but uh I've I've great time and great experiences with them because we went together.
1: So to you were Japan. pretty much sponsored <coughs> then by the Atlantic Coast Hotel.
2: They certainly helped out, yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: they helped out. That's lovely. It was. Again, people uh, throughout my life, people have been. Yeah. To me. So you bring the bike to Japan <coughs> and you're competing.
2: We are here at the kind of getting ready to start the race. You know, and there's all these young people there, and I'm going, "Ah, oh, fair play to them, helping out their parents." You know, but no, <laughs> they were fucking competing, <laughs> and I'm kind of going, "What the hell is going on here?" And we started the race And I went full out it What was, race was it? I think it was either 20 or 30 kilometres <clears throat> So cyclists would call it a sprint and I was thinking It would be a nice leisurely On store. the main
1: road Or it wasn't in a It wasn't in a complex Park like.
2: main road park big Phoenix Park style place
1: Right
2: <clears throat> And uh, off we went I went as hard as I could For the entire race It was 33 degrees heat And I got a gift from the, Not a gift I asked for it From the Irish Cycling Federation They very kindly gave me The Irish Uniform but I had asked for it after Christmas, so I got the full wi- winter gear. So I had long sleeves, <laughs> jacket, long sleeve pants, or long sleeve, long legged pants. And I nearly died to death. But I did like, you know, I took it serious. I, I gave it everything and I came third, Alan, which was, you might think, a remarkable achievement. But I came third last. I got absolutely destroyed. <laughs> by, uh, I think I just pipped a 72 year old on the line to get third last. So it was
1: a remarkable eye opener for me. Was everyone else in the shorts and t-shirts?
2: Oh, they were. The, they had the serious gear. Yeah. The fella, uh, just to show you the level, <laughs> one guy was, he cycled the junior Juro d'Italia from Israel, this guy was. And uh, he came third in that. But then a few years later, he got kidney failure, he got dialysis, and he only came third in the race. So like the, the level, the quality. Were you
1: that. representing <clears> Ireland <throat> or Darren Cawley?
2: Ireland. It was an Irish team. 21 people went out. And that was definitely a day I I learned from other people. It was a real turning point in terms of role models. My role models in hospital were all 17, 80-year-olds. These are the people who have kidney failure. But suddenly I met all these young people. And I'm embarrassed, very embarrassed to say now that uh, when I was flying over and back to college and they said, uh, anyone with illness or anyone with children that need to sit at the front of the plane, please come up now. I would go up. I have kidney failure. Can I go? I'm... (laughs) that's hitting me hard now just talking about it like why? I used to go up because like cop on you feeling sorry for yourself I was so sad and I was poor me and uh, I've kidney failure oh you can sit at the front poor fella look at that oh and I got the nice seat you know and then I go to these transplant games and realise I have kidney failure my Uh, legs are fine my arms my heart my head everything was working fine just my kidneys but
1: I wouldn't be hard on yourself for going to the front of the plane Because you've been through an awful lot uh, That was just
2: being molly cuddled Making excuses for myself uh, Living in the illness, the illness was me I'm a sick person, poor me Because I guess I was getting that Oh Darren, sit down there, we'll make you a cup of tea You're sick How's Darren, the lad that was sick You know, that was what I was living in This. I'm a sick person, so be sick Take on that role And the transplant games really just twisted that. Like, I'm so grateful to the Kidney Association for starting up these transplant games, you know, uh, because it certainly turned my life around. So you got your hours
1: handed to you? Handed to me. Right. And what
2: what changed then? Well, my outlook kind of began slowly to change. That was one of the big turning points. Um, A bigger turning point came about a year later. I was preparing to go to the next transplant games. And every three months you go and get blood tests and my bloods were kind of okay and then three months later oh they're a bit worse and then three months later we might have a problem and three months later darren we're, we're very sorry to tell you we've done a few tests but we're going to have to remove your kidney and there we are there's there's the low point like getting kidney failure initially was unfortunate coincidental just how could that happen but now i knew exactly what losing a kidney meant that meant I'm going back on dialysis. And because I've had a transplant and there was some sort of viral infection, it meant I'm going to be on dialysis
1: for a long time. And I'm 23, 24 now. Did you start to... Did you start then to worry? You know how oh. you said before you were always just like ah, Irish or look at guam to get on and didn't think too much. Did it start to hit home now? I did, yeah. Because yeah. I knew when they said we're going to have to remove the transplant, that meant
2: they're going to. I'm going to have to go through all the pain and suffering of a transplant, but in reverse. And I'd never had a big operation. The transplant was horrible and painful and sore. And now they're going to do it in reverse. They're going to take out the kidney. There's no happy ending. The gift of life has been removed and I'm going to be a sick person for quite a long time.
1: They weren't replacing it.
2: I went back on a list. But I couldn't even go on the list because I had this virus. And that virus, like 70% of the population have it. It's totally benign. Unless you have a transplant and you're on immunosuppressants And so I couldn't even go on the list for five years And I was another four years waiting for the transplant So I, was, I spent the next nine years
1: going into hospital every two days For dialysis? Yeah With, your, with the <clears throat> kidney that you had? The second kidney? No, that's gone Oh right, they removed that? They removed it that's what I
2: mean. And if they took out the kidney That's what I mean by all the pain and suffering of that transplant In reverse,
1: they took it out So you had no kidney then? Wow. Yeah.
2: And from then on, like, when I got kidney failure initially, I had a a urine output. I went to the toilet. For the next nine years, I didn't pee. Nothing. A few drops, maybe. Sorry? I did not go to the toilet for nine years. Urinate. Did you have a bag? No. Where did it go? I had to stop drinking. If your kidneys don't work, there was nothing going into the bladder. So then there was nothing to pee out. Wrap your mind around that. So you just ate, but you never drank? I drank, yeah. You'd sweat out a certain amount, but that was one of the roles of dialysis. Dialysis would suck out the extra fluid. So my weight, I remember so clearly on dialysis, I was 66 kilos. That was my weight. And then after two days, I'd be 69 kilos. So they'd have to remove three litres out of me in the three or four hours. And that wasn't great on the body.
1: Is it painful? Dialysis. Yeah.
2: Not really, it's the needles going in and out, that's yeah. not nice Yeah. Uh, sometimes you faint, feel faint Sometimes, I, you know, I've seen cardiac arrest in the person right next to me I've seen a lot of n- not nice experiences, yeah And as a young person, 24, it's not a good environment to be in
1: So you're doing this for nine years? <clears throat> yeah And of course then, sure, there's no real work, is there, or sports, or...
2: I always worked, yeah, well, I worked gone? in leisure centres I worked in the Court Hotel in the leisure centre there which was, uh, which is fantastic, but I didn't work full-time. I worked substitute teaching in Rice College in Westport and in Nakruski. So I did, I always worked, yeah.
1: And o- and all this time you were going from Westport over to Castle Bar to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Which is I'd go
2: in the e- e- the afternoon around 1 or 2
1: o'clock. 15, 20 minutes over the road. Yeah. You're over there then for four hours, is it?
2: About four, four and a half hours, yeah.
1: So all your employers had to be fairly um, understanding.
2: Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be full-time work, but you'd be rotated in for the other days. And like, you... you
1: it's not yeah. a lot of messing for them now in in fairness. There's a bit of that, yeah. There was
2: yeah. huge gratitude there. The Corcorans, they were very good to me. I knew them personally anyway, my family did, and you know, they you know, they helped me out.
1: That's massive, yeah. Yeah. Because anyone else would be like, Arra ah, feck it if he's no good to us on Wednesday evening and Thursday evening. And yeah.
2: Yeah. Again, this is the story of my life, people very good to me.
1: Mm. So now let's skip forward nine years then. Nine years is a long time. It was a long
2: time, yeah. All my twenties and part of my thirties, really. From twenty four to thirty three.
1: How were you mentally then? Were you ever like, ah, oh, fuck this? I think I was at the beginning, yeah. That was a low point. Did you recognise that? Do you remember
0: the uh, lowest point?
2: Uh, that, that was, well, when I got kidney failure, funnily enough, I remember this very clearly. I was sitting on the toilet in our rented house in England and I just I had kidney failure. I was on dialysis and I remember crying in the toilet. And I kind of shook myself. I got a little bit angry and I said, that won't be happening again. And from then on, I dealt with it. I think in the Irish way, (laughs) a lot of people would say, I buried it. Yeah, I buried it. I would not lower myself to get down into that crying over it again. Just get on with it.
1: But that takes an an incredibly strong person to do that.
2: I wasn't strong at the time.
1: But you were stronger than you're letting on. To To shake that off in the bathroom. Because I'd still be in the bathroom crying but you shake
2: it off or you see the reality there's no way out if you can't go backwards you only have to kind of figure out the best way of going forwards you know to quote Paulo Coelho there but uh, at the time I wasn't aware of any of that it was just rise, right, just do it I was a thickness kind of and yeah, again, the, the kind of West of Ireland attitude. don't be showing your emotions, you know. So I, I, I think that's what happened. I buried it, really.
1: And was there any low points <laughs> then during the nine years in Ireland? Was there any moments? Well, just initially.
2: Initially, losing the transplant was hard because the day after you have this huge operation to remove the kidney, you're wheeled into hospital ward. You're drugged up to the last. But you start. You hear the noises, the machines, the blood pressure cuffs. You hear the beeping. You hear Midwest radio, you, you know, when I got back to Castlebar. And nothing against Midwest Radio, right? But nine years of Midwest Radio on. When you're in the hospital, what happens at 10 o'clock on Midwest? (laughs) The death notices. The death notices. And there's always a guy saying, will you turn up the deaths there, please? Oh, no. And I thought it was so surreal and mentally damaging to know that here we are listening to the deaths while being kept alive by a machine. And that's not. A 24-year-old shouldn't be in that environment. It wasn't a positive environment.
1: No, but it's a very West of Ireland thing, the the death notices. And Midwest Radio were actually the first radio station in Ireland to start death notices. Okay. And they used to just open the newspaper and read them out. And people used to say, what are you doing? What are you doing reading them out? So that's how they started. And then they were the first radio station, I believe, to start charging people to put them on. And then this thing developed, whereas all our parents used to tune in at that particular time, turn it up, and everyone was told to shut up. It's
2: part of our childhood nearly.
1: Shut up. The deaths are on. I didn't thank them for it. But people in the East or or abroad would find that very, very strange. Yeah. That three times a day, our parents used... The the house would come to a standstill, and we would stand up for a good five or six minutes listening to everyone who died to find out, did anyone around here or was there anyone we knew?
2: Yeah, that's my memory.
1: Turn up the deaths there, nurse. And the music coming in, yeah. The death has occurred of.
2: Think about put yourself in my place. Twenty four, my life felt like it was over again. I just got like a taste of freedom, and I could uh, like I, I think back, I can nearly, I could nearly feel eyes on me. Right, so all the people, lovely people, been kept alive too, like with kidney failure, and they're thinking. I felt like they were thinking. Look at that poor fella. We've lived our lives. like We have kids, we've travelled, we've worked. That fella had never had a chance. You know, and look at him here, the poor fella. You could see it in their eyes. The poor fella. And that was, that was not a nice feeling.
1: What happened then after the nine years?
2: Well, I think we should talk about the nine years.
1: Okay, well, let's talk, let's talk about the nine the years. The nine
2: years are the turning point. Like Darren Cawley, shy, naive, burying my head in the sand guy, disappeared in them nine years. And there's many factors for that. One was going to them transplant games. I continued going to the transplant and dialysis games. So again, they were the ones that I was surrounded by role models.
1: How could you go to them if you had to be in every two days? Because I had
2: to be in every two days, wherever country they were in. Wow. So I went to Slovenia, to Hungary, and there was one in Dublin. And I had to get dialysis out there. So a huge amount of planning and preparation for that.
1: But worthwhile. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, That's really, really incredible now that they can give you the opportunity to go to the transplant games and dialysis games and put all that on for you and have you looked after so well out there. Like, you have to take your hat off to those people.
2: Well, they're the patient organisations. They're the Irish Kidney Association. That's an incredible... They live up to their name. They're the kidney association for patients. And I'm incredibly grateful
1: for that. Nobody sees that. Nobody hears about that. Not at all.
2: No. The government used to fund them loads of money and they stopped. And like, to go to these games, you have to fundraise myself. I had to raise the money. I had to pay for myself. And you can't go fundraising constantly, so I just... You'd work hard and save up and try and and go to them. But they were... I met all these other people. Some of my best friends. What kind of
1: money was it to go, do you remember?
2: Uh, Well, at the time, like a thousand euro and spending money. It was dear. Mm. Now, the dialysis was free, but you still had to pay for your hotels and go to the registration. And we all did fundraising. It all went into a pot. It helped enormously. But that that was hard, because you feel like you're not really being treated fairly, because... It's hard to
1: do something continuously, fundraise for for yourself. So what happened to Darren Cawley then over the nine years? Did you well, change? Yeah, massively, yeah. In what sense?
2: I became a confident, uh, proactive, outgoing person. Really? <clears throat> All my fears. Like, I would not speak in public. Oh, my God. The fear, the shakes, the you said, shivers.
1: You said you were a quiet boy in school. Very quiet, yeah. yeah. When
2: I went to college, all my modules were picked on whether you had to speak in the class or not. And if you had to speak in the class, I didn't do that module. No way. Like, I'm, again, a lot of things I say are embarrassing now. Myself and a friend at half nine in the morning, we drank a nag in a vodka before we had to give a class presentation. <laughs> and it wasn't because we were big drinkers. It was just the fear. And people say, alcohol gives you confidence. So we drank, yeah.
1: And what gave you the confidence then? Where did this confidence come from?
2: Well, it was, again, I finally had role models. I had friends who were family, who had kidney failure and went on to have families, who had businesses, who were real great crack, great people. Uh, on dialysis, again, the nurses saw the, maybe the damage on the floor I was in mentally. And I used to put me in a room privately sometimes. Whenever it was free, I'd go into a private room and I started reading books. And I wouldn't read fiction, only non-fiction. So alternative history and psychology and biographies and business books and all these positive books. And they were starting to be ingrained into me. I started doing affirmations quietly myself. You know, I am happy and healthy. I am honest and loving. I am confident and courageous. And I would repeat these things again and again and again. And I really feel I rewired the brain. So role models, affirmations, affirmations. positive mindset again I couldn't go drinking with friends so that kind of culture wasn't part of me I used to go for a sauna every day and I met some terrific positive role models in the sauna in the pool environment because they were healthy people and instead of going to the pub drinking and talking I got some of the finest advice and friendships ever just by lying around the pool having chats what pool? the casco I was working there yeah so like Austin all these great friends now like and uh you know, I, uh, they were invaluable to me at a very low time.
1: So the sauna became <clears> your social outlet. Yeah.
2: Like an old man's outlet is the pub where he goes down, has two pints and has a good chat. And it's great for mental health. The sauna used to be mine because, again, I had a fluid restriction. I couldn't go drinking pints. and So I didn't. But I had another avenue open to me. And it felt like because I was sweating out a lot of the waste products, I could drink a bit more. I could have the cups of teas and cups of coffee. And that made me feel more normal. I played sport still. I got back to playing five a side soccer with friends. And I'm very proud of myself. When nine years later I got another transplant, one of the guys in the soccer group who I didn't know very well and didn't know me, he asked the other guys, Where's, where's Cauley? Where's the other fella? Oh, he got a transplant yesterday. I said, What? Was he sick? He didn't know I was sick. And I that felt so good, you yeah. know, to hear things like that. But over that nine years, I also started uh, invaluable. I joined the Westport Lions Club. So I don't know, do you know much about the Lions Club, but it's no. a huge charity organisation all around the world, 1.4 million members. And when I got sick initially, three members of this Lions Club in westport i never heard of it at the time, came up and said, what do you need? Do you need a car for dialysis? Do you need money? Do you need anything? We'll help you out in any way we can. And thankfully, I didn't need anything. You know, family were brilliant. But when they asked me to join the Lions Club when I was 28 or 29, I said, absolutely, yeah, I will. Because I'd left such an indemnable, positive...
1: What do you do when you join the Lions Club? What Exactly.
2: You raise money or you help out other people. It's just being of service to the community. And because it's all people in the community, they know what's needed. And I said about joining, you know, it's hard for me to go fundraising for other charities when I'm kind of involved in the Kidney Association and the Punchestown Kidney Research Fund and things like that. And they said, well, why don't you go into schools and give talks?
0: And again, I thought I
2: couldn't do that. But there was a good, a, good, a good kind of idea behind it to promote donor awareness. And so that's what I started doing. And that again, little did I know at the time, doing a free talk in Lewisburg was the first one I ever did in the TYs there. And when I was finished the talk, I got a massive round of applause. You know, my story resonated with the kids. But
1: more than that, I had a value. Now, you're playing this down as well because the school in Lewisburg is massive. Sancta Maria College. Yeah, yeah. Like that's a big, when you say Lewisburg, you, you kind of have this small little village in your head. That's a big school.
2: Yeah, well I just spoke to one or two classes but what I didn't realise at the time uh, when I started talking and I got the round of applause the teachers come up by us first and said you should keep doing that. That's a spectacular thing. Them kids were really helped by your story, your example of overcoming adversity and the talks became more about overcoming adversity because I'd learned all these skills about resilience and challenges in life How did you put structure on the talk itself? I didn't initially. You just just, rocked in? I just rocked in and told my story. And many years later I realised it's not my story that is important. It's the lessons from my story that can go on to help other people.
1: What kind of lessons?
2: Well, growth in adversity. I came out a better person for having kidney failure. I have all these skills and attitudes and positivity because I went through all the shit. What skills do you have? I think confidence. A certain uh, a certain belief in myself that I can get through anything Because I've got through enough horrible things Like I know some of your talks there Some people were talking about on the podcast About post-traumatic stress And I feel that probably was a factor in my life I, I did go through some horrible times And I read, I started reading about a thing called post-traumatic growth Where you go through horrible times But you end up better because of it And that that's how I see myself I'm a much better person now Confidence-wise, assertiveness, resilience, coping skills. All these things are now inherent. They're part of my character.
1: Where did you learn them? Did you learn them or did you go to talk to somebody? No, no, never talked to anyone. You never spoke to anyone? My
2: role models, my books, my affirmations. All these things certainly over time developed this character ethic that was, it's pretty much unbreakable. Like I talk about going into hospital and I'll be a total pussy. I hate it. And if they go to stick a needle in me, I'll be nervous and shaky and everything. But I'll tell them to just keep doing. Just ignore me. Do whatever you have to do to make me better. I don't care about what you do to me. Once I walk out the hospital, a better version than when I come in. And that's that's kind of what illness has taught me. I can overcome anything. And the problem today, especially in schools, kids don't have to overcome anything much. Life is often very cozy and very easy. And they, feed, they start crying if things go bad. Whereas... Even when we were a bit younger, sometimes you got pushed around, you got bullied a bit, and hopefully you learned the lessons from that and you're a stronger person as a result. I'm trying to tell people in school that bad shit's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. You can't avoid it. So develop these skills. Develop resilience. You know, if you fall down and you hurt yourself off your bike, you're going to damn well make sure you don't do that again. You know, that's a bit lightheartedly saying it, but that's the way I see it now, that... um, I can kind of add value to to people in schools and I do a lot of other talks, but that's kind of the big one that started me off.
1: Had you um, a partner during this time or did you meet anyone or?
2: Yeah, no problem there.
1: Once you became confident, were you single is what I'm trying to, were you single? No, all throughout
2: my illness for some reason. I I did always have girlfriends. I never had, uh, fell in love loads of times. I was never (laughs) nearly without a girlfriend for some reason. Um, But you had to have been very
1: self-conscious then. Initially, when you're with girls,
2: uh, initially I think I could still go out drinking and that, and that kind of social lubricant really, really helped me. But
1: you couldn't drink when you're on dialysis, could you?
2: I could, yeah. And I, what? I thought you said you couldn't have any liquid. <clears throat> well, I could have one liter of liquid for the day or something like that, five hundred mils. But it was again because I went for saunas and that, I felt I could drink more. So look, right. if I went out drinking, I was still in my twenties. I was still a, you know, I wanted to be young. I wanted to go out. I used to go out on a Friday night. Great friend Sean Morden we'd go out together we'd drink lots but I would have to drink short. I would have to drink vodka with kind of no mixer because I couldn't drink the fluid it didn't matter a pint of Guinness is the same as a pint of water the same as a pint of vodka You're it was fluid away. right? and uh, I could drink away yeah there was no problem with drinking
1: were you, were you supposed to be not drinking?
2: It would be advised maybe not to overindulge but I would wake up the next day and make my way to dialysis and they would just hand me a red bucket when they saw me and I would vomit and get violently ill. They told me like science had shown that a, a hangover on dialysis is about eight times worse. So you're overloaded with fluid and you're dehydrated at the same time.
1: But for such a smart man mm-hmm. that was into affirmations and all this at this stage, then how foolish were you to be going out drinking and making yourself sick then? Because more?
2: I was a young person. I still wanted to experience life. I wanted to get stuck in I wasn't, like, uh, to be honest, a lot of people on dialysis, certainly in England when I was over there, they used to smoke a lot of dope and hash and stuff like that. And I'm not not into drugs. I never was. I had no interest in it. But going out with friends, having a few drinks, the social side of things, it made me feel normal. Now, I suffered greatly because of it, but I maintained some of my great friends and had great experiences. I felt normal. And that was more valuable than being... uh, you
1: know, a bit sick one day. So this, the talk in Loosburg then lit a fire in your belly for public speaking?
2: Massively, yeah. I, there was so many emotional and mental benefits. I felt like I had a use in the world again. A real tangible use. And outside of that, I started going into different schools. I just ring them up and say, Hi, I'm Darren, I'm in the Lions Club, we're doing this project. It's kind of good for young people. And they'd, how much is it? It's free. Oh, great, come on in. No problem. I could. I was in Belmullet loads of times, Sligo balna and the Kidney Association heard about it, and this is where it got, a big change came about. They said World Kidney Day is in the Brussels, in the Europe. No, sorry, Strasbourg at the European Parliament. We heard you're doing a lot of speaking. Would you be interested in come and speak to some of the MPs and the members of Parliament, like the uh, and some of the pharmaceutical heads and some of the patient organisations? They're going to have a lunch in the
0: European Parliament,
2: and I I went for it.
0: B or B homes make your dream home a reality. We do it all from start to finish. Your one-stop shop to becoming a homeowner. Log on to brbhomes.ie
2: I went to Strasbourg and again I was nervous but not as nervous as I should have been because before all this I had started a thing called Westport Toastmasters and Toastmasters again another organisation that helped me massively learning to speak in public. So I'd learned a few tricks and a bit of confidence was growing in the structure and getting more getting better at the speaking. And when I went to the European Parliament it was a bit weird. It was a bit daunting. There was a professor, two professors speaking before me and they were on about the demographic statistical analysis and they were on about kind of the future prospects of this and that and diabetes and kidney failure. Very academic. And they had these amazing powerpoints behind them. And I arrived up for my talk.
1: Had you notes or anything with
2: you? No, I didn't really. Because I said, tell your story, you know, t- you know. but I wanted to be good. I had practice stuff. And when I stood up to talk, I said, hello, my name is Darren. I'm from Ireland. And I'm going to go tell you a bit about my story. And I said to the girl who was kind of like an assistant there, I said, first slide there, please, Erica. And Erica nearly fell on the floor because I had no slides. It just, <laughs> it just came to me in the moment. And her boss looked at her, clicked his fingers. Erica, come on, get going. And she was looked panicked, you know, and I said, I'm only joking, I have no slides. <laughs> uh, but I have been on dials for the last seven years and I've had and lost transplants. So don't take it that I don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, they were gripped, you know, and you showed the buzzy arm and you do. It went so well, I got asked to go to uh, Slovenia, Slovenia.
1: Hang on, not, on, don't be, don't be just skipping over this now. How many people were you talking to?
2: Well, only about, I'd say there was 20 or 30. There was maybe three MPs, but one of them had a budget of billions. You know, she was very important. And there was all these pharmaceutical heads and different And how did the like talk that. go? Well, that was it. The talk went brilliant from then on, you know. and They I all sh- give you a clap at the end. Oh, massive clap, shake hands. But that was the, the, the side effect of that was, will you come to our company in Germany? Will you come to Paris to speak at this conference? Will you come to... Uh, I went to Sweden a few times. You know, all because of that. So
1: that all talk. these big heads <clears throat> in the room were inviting you then to their pharmaceutical companies, yeah. isn't
2: and patient organizations and conferences. And it was like, Prague was one of my favourites, you know, for many reasons, which i So I'll then you, you become mm-hmm. a
1: motivational speaker? All by doing a free talk
2: in Lewisburg. This, after a year, this late, uh, suddenly been asked. And I didn't know anything about charity. I was still on dialysis, which means if they invite me over, they had to organise all the dialysis and all that. And they started going, oh, there's an honorarium of 500 euro or something like that. And I was going, well, what? You're going to bring me on holiday? I only have to talk for half an hour and you're going to give me money? And I was going, this is the, just the best thing ever. So that was a big a big turning point really was that. And I got to go to all these countries, which I wouldn't have got to go to because organizing dialysis it's it's not easy. It's not easy getting holidays.
1: Wow. That's incredible that you become an international motivational speaker. Yeah,
2: I have a pretty good C V. People don't realise like all these countries I've spoken at, conferences. I was the highest rated guest speaker of a three day a three day kind of conference at three is that right? Yeah, three-day conference in, in Latvia, another one in uh, Dresden in Germany and I got all these awards for public speaking and standing ovations and it felt fantastic. Like I really felt like I was contributing, helping
1: out. I don't know how much you get paid to give a Westport walking tour, but I'm sure you're well underpaid. I'm underpaid, <laughs> yeah. In, in Slightly com- different. In comparison to your CV. Yeah. And then people come to Westport and they do a Westport walking tour. They, do they? Do you ever tell them that you're an international motivational speaker? Sometimes it comes out, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, like, if you have a
2: small group and you might say, I'm Darren, I'm from Westport, and uh, I might just say a bit about myself. I actually, I do a bit of this motivational speaking on the side. When you're hanging around waiting for more people to come or something, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they kind of say at the end, I can see why you're a motivational speaker, because there's a certain energy and enthusiasm that's, that's there that's kind of very natural.
1: What happens next? So you're you're flying around the world going to all these countries, over what kind of time period?
2: Uh, this is slowly over years, over kind of years. So you're still coming home, doing, working... I'm still doing the normal job, but I get asked three or four times a year to go, oh, you come to this conference? Will you come here? And at this stage, you asked about girls. I was going out with a young lady from Westport called Efa, and I was asked to speak at a conference in Prague. And we were going out together now maybe three years at this stage
1: can I just say that there was a big smile in your face when you said the word Aoife there <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping this is your current wife is it
2: it's my first wife Aoife yeah okay <laughs> my first wife yeah 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 my roommate Cause, Aoife because yeah. your
1: face lit up when you said that name <laughs> but, so that, that was lovely that well, was a lovely thing to see that yeah well because the story too alright she
2: cringes I laugh uh, I got asked we have going out a long time she did hint you know when are we getting married and all that but again I'm on dialysis if I get married, what happens the day after my wedding? Back into dialysis. There's no trip to Hawaii there. Like, so it's not the dream. And that was kind of my attitude. And then I was going into these companies doing motivational speeches. And everyone was inspired and delighted and really encouraged by what I was saying. And there I'm not walking my talk. You know, I was in love with Aoife. And, you know. So we were going to Prague. And I asked the organiser, Jitka. I said, uh, I'm kind of half thinking of proposing to Efa while I'm in Prague. Uh, What do you recommend? You know, she said, oh, we have the the bridge and we have the opera house and the castle. But she said, why don't you do it up on stage in front of everybody? It'd be fantastic. And I just laughed my head off and said, no, I'll have a look at the opera. Oh, no, listen, listen, I'll do this, this and this. So I had decided. (laughs) She persuaded me. She had champagne for everyone in the room. She had a professional photographer and a videographer there. She might have had them there anyway. I don't know. And at the end of my talk, well, halfway through my talk we had a before the halfway through the conference there was a break. And I was told, Darren, this is Professor Lopot. He's going to be your simultaneous translator. And I said, Sorry, what? Well you're you're you know, no one in the room is very good at English. Some are, some aren't. So we're going to do a simultaneous translation. And I didn't know what that was. And it ended up Professor Lopot, lovely man. Uh, I'd say, hello, my name is Darren, I'm from the West of Ireland. And he'd go, as you go, go Darren, I do what? Uh, West of Ireland. And I would do my whole talk what with a di- ring in my pocket here. And uh, anyway, that was stressful enough. Talk went great. And at the end, someone asked a question, said, uh, uh, is there anyone you'd like to thank? Or, you know, all prepared. And I said, oh, well, my girlfriend Eve is here and I'd love to give her something to say thanks for coming with me. And I had a bunch of flowers. So she went, was in the audience.
1: She was in the audience. Was she mortified? Mortified, yeah. What kind of... what? Just try and describe her mm-hmm. to me. Like, what kind of lady was she? Was she, like... She wouldn't like the limelight, wouldn't be into public speaking.
2: Uh, oh, very competent person, absolutely. Uh She's singing for years in weddings and all that. All so, right, okay. But certainly wouldn't look for limelight in any way, shape or form. All right, so okay.
1: not that shy then?
2: Not shy, but... She wasn't really expecting to be called up to stage. For the bunch of flowers. uh, Yeah, so she was holding the bunch of flowers up because we have photographs of this and video. And I went down on one knee in front of everybody. And Professor Lopat was translating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He is about to ask her to marry him in... Now, had Aoife any idea at all? Zero. Genuinely? Genuinely, because we had talked about it that day. It would be lovely to get engaged in, you know, in the summer and have a barbecue and stuff like that. So we had talked about it. But I wasn't one of these people that plans it. There's no, nothing in that. You had to do something interesting. Uh, and even I showed her a pair of socks. I had "What's thing with these socks. Could I wear them today? And she said, don't be ridiculous. They're horrible. But I had the ring inside it. You know, something we went back looking at. And I said, you better dress up because there could be pictures. So I did save her that. If she showed up in the tracksuit now, she'd never forgive me. <laughs> but she was dressed very well. Yeah, she looked great. And I went down on one knee. And the bunch of flowers just, just kind of tilted over in her hand. She was in dumbstruck. And uh,
1: obviously, she said yes. How many people were in the room?
2: Ah, uh, there might have been hundred and twenty or something like that. So oh, really? Oh, uh,
1: <coughs> hundred and twenty. God. Well, oh in the back
2: God. of my mind, if she did say no, no one would ever know about it. You know, it's in it was in Prague.
1: But she couldn't say no. She had to say yeah to at least get out of there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. And we, we walked out, and you see people on the video crying. It was it was memorable. Did Eva cry? Uh, she was a bit uh, tearful, all right. Surprised, the shock was really hit her. But then we had champagne and everything else afterwards, and it was a lovely...
1: What was going through your head when you were proposing? Were you nervous? Were you sweating?
2: I was pretty nervous, yeah.
1: Were you, did you Were you confident? Not
2: nervous about Aoife.
1: Were you confident she'd say yes? Yeah,
2: yeah. Right, so 100%. You,
1: yeah, you knew that much?
2: Yeah, yes, definitely. She was kind of offering me a kidney nearly at this stage, because uh, she wanted to get married. <laughs> She's going to
1: kill me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Uh, what we'll, happened that evening then? You went off and celebrated.
2: We did. We did, we stayed in a lovely hotel. Uh, the organisers brought us out for dinner and
1: did brought us into all these lovely places. And had you anyone told you were going to do it?
2: Yeah, I had a great friend, uh, Breed and Paul, these two people. We used to meet in Helena Chocolates every Tuesday. We were called the Tuesday Club. So after dialysis, I'd come down and we'd meet because they worked in Castlebar. I was throwing out the different things I was going to do and they were pretty shocked by it all, but... I got the blessing from them, from the Tuesday Club, yeah. Again, I'm blessed. I've got terrific friends. All, like, many different sets of different friends. But no family knew? Uh, I don't think so, no. I don't think I told anyone. Okay, lovely. And uh, I got a ring, and of course, she didn't like the ring. uh, So I had to get another ring. Right. Uh, Fair enough. The The ring cost me €10.98 on (laughs) eBay. (laughs) So I forgave her that one, yeah. But this is the funny part, right? That was on... Whatever, we say it was the 10th of January uh, The 10th of February we were. I was on the road from Westport to Dublin Aoife worked in Dublin I was on the road to Dublin uh, We were going getting a real engagement ring, a proper one When my phone rang halfway to Dublin, Longford And someone said, hi Darren And it was someone from the transplant coordinator's office okay. And I, I knew the girl I didn't talk for the Beaumont Hospital for different things And she said, how are you feeling Darren? Great, great And anything happening? No And I kind of asked, have you a reason for ringing me? And she said, Darren, we think we have a transplant for you. Can, you. can you get to Dublin straight away? I said, I'm already on the way. That's amazing. So obviously I rang EFA, and I said, we're not going shopping for engagement rings tomorrow. She said, fuck, what the, f- what is it now? Well, I'm going on holidays for two weeks. Well, good for, f- what? I've got a call for the transplant. And like, she, she was crying and it was very emotional, you know, because now all the plans and dreams of a wedding, it was going to happen now straight away we were going planning you know so but again going up to the hospital at that time was not as much fun as the first time because I knew I was ahead of me I knew there was the catheters and the lines and the drips and the pain and suffering but again I didn't mind I knew the potential happy ever after that was 11 years ago was it easier or harder the second time it was harder mentally It was harder. I'd spend nine years on dialysis. And going into hospital every two days, everyone was saying, oh, you can't wait, I'd say, to get away from the hospital. But these are the nurses. They weren't nurses. They were my friends. You know, and uh, if I had a sore toe, I could show it to them. I had this safety net there. And mentally, it was challenging not to go into hospital again until, like, every two weeks. And then it was every month. Then every three months. And it, it took a while to get used to this whole new body. So I lived in this tired, drained, sick body. But... I like to think I was the healthiest person around like you know as I said at the transplant games you alluded to at the beginning the transplant dialysis games in in Germany and in Dublin I ran in the 100 meters and I won them so then jokingly again friends great friends that I have here
1: hang on slow down when did you win them
2: well that was 2008
1: and 2010
2: while on dialysis
1: why did you breeze over <laughs> these and you made such a big deal about coming
2: third last in the first game? Because that was a more important, that medal, I got a medal at that Transplant Games for sprinting. And that medal is more important than any of the gold medals. Which, which, which medal? I got a bronze medal for running at the original games in Japan in
1: 2001. The first one? The first one, yeah. A bronze medal, you came yeah. third? In running. In running? Yeah, sprinting. And But you only told us about the time you came third last yeah, in cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, you didn't tell us he came home a bronze bronze medalist. I did, yeah. Representing uh, Ireland at yeah. the first Transplant Games. Why didn't you say that? Why did you only tell us the bad <laughs> news? <laughs> I dunno. I I, I I learned more from the bad news. Yeah. That's
2: where that's where the that's the experience I remember more.
1: I, I appreciate that, but still a, a massive achievement.
2: Ah yeah, like going out to the Games, I did practice a lot at the sprinting, because I was young, light, fit, I was a bit of a whippet, and I got great coaching from a buddy called Sean Langan, who won All-Irelands in sprinting, so I had the coaching done for that, but my first time ever running on a track was out in Japan. Right, bronze medal the first time, and then what, the second time? Uh, The second time the kidneys had failed, kind of, I was about to have the transplant nephrectomy after the Games. (laughs) Well when was the second time you won? Uh, Well, 2005, I went to Slovenia to the European Transplant Dialysis Games, and there was a Spaniard at it who was in Division 1 Spanish football until he got kidney failure, and he won everything. And then the next games was in Germany, and there I won the gold medal at the sprint in there.
1: Gold medal?
2: Yeah, a gold medal for my country. It was kind of a, to stand there and to have an Irish flag being... Risen up behind me
1: Is it like the Olympics? You're up there 1, 2 and 3 Yeah And you're presented with the medal Without the enormous crowd Yeah, that's it exactly And is the national, and the national anthem-,
2: anthem was played, yeah <clears throat> Wow Yeah, I was taking snapshots in my mind that day That
1: was special uh, And is it covered in any news or anything?
2: It was at the time, yeah Plenty of it And I won Sports Star of the Year awards And Mayo and Connacht and stuff I got loads of awards I've loads of trophy things up on the wall And stuff like that, yeah
1: Tell me about that day when the gold medal is going around your neck. Ah. Uh, is it like winning the Olympics? I don't think so. Because someone like me who's
2: incredibly competitive, secretly, <laughs> I'm, you know, I was all about motivating everybody and it was a real team effort. But when I go and compete in Antin, I kind of, I, I want to win it. I want to give everything. It's but not about winning, it's giving everything. But you did win it. But I did win it, yeah. So what was that feeling like? It's, it's kind of generally, as everyone says, it's, it's, there's a lot of relief to it. Because I did train very hard. And you see, the participation in a transplant dialysis game, is, it's about transplantation. It's about the gift of life. It's about donor awareness. The sport is just a vehicle to get that message across. So again, competition-wise, it's not at the same level. It wouldn't be of the same level of the Paralympics, even the Special Olympics. We wouldn't be at that professional level. It's more like low amateurs, just...
1: It's no, more to it than the sport. It can't be that low. If you were on about the Spaniard, there they cleaned up everything. Cleaned I mean, he, up he everything, yeah. yeah Manuel, yeah, Manuel,
2: <laughs> that was his name. Yeah, yeah, lovely guy.
1: Um, were you emotional?
2: Uh, I was a little emotional, yeah. But again, I, I still think I have uh, a picture on the wall with uh, a framed picture with medals in it, and the medals in that the number one medal is the bronze medal, my first medal. You know, it just it meant more to me. Because of the, I think, the psychological change that came from, from that game. That meeting these different people, meeting these friends. Like, I can't emphasize the importance of role models
1: in your life. I think it's incredible that a kidney failure can allow you to still compete and do the things you wanted to do. Like that organization yeah. just does not get enough credit for what they do.
2: Not at all. Because I, I tell you, everyone, it's not the sport. I just
1: think you're <laughs> you're here in London. You're you're sitting on the toilet, crying your eyes out, thinking this is it. My life is pointless. Yeah. And fast forward, and you get to go to Japan to represent Ireland and come home with a bronze medal. They just ah, oh, it's incredible. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah,
2: I don't, I don't reflect enough. Maybe on the, on the. On the positives because so, again I, I just I, I give a friend of mine A very hard time uh, A great friend of mine Paul Coughlin, another We speak together in schools And Paul Got leukemia And like You know Less than 8% chance of survival You know Really difficult time And he was going to have A bone marrow transplant But it didn't happen He kind of came through himself And I said You feckin idiot You could have got to go To all these transplant games If you just had that Bone marrow transplant And uh, It's a bit of a joke Between us that he He didn't go down that road. Unfortunately, he could have got to come to all these
1: (laughs) games with me. You know, we could have had great experiences. So, but that's sidelined. Another story. You got this title then, the fastest sick person in Europe. Yeah, it's self-deprecating. It's not a a serious (laughs) thing, just to spell that
2: out. But I thought it was a cool tagline. Someone in, uh, my old buddy Shane Morden used to have a pub and I used to work there a bit. And I remember one night, I think it was the vet there, Pete said, uh, oh, so it's the Spare Parts Olympics. Because everyone had spare parts as such. Yeah. And I love that sort of, we don't take ourselves, our health, our life too seriously. It's a lovely Irish thing. It's a lovely Irish thing, yeah. Where they
1: they can't give you, they can't they can't say well done for winning no. them. <laughs> they kind of want it in a roundabout way. Yeah. And that's their way of saying it. Yeah. The spare so, parts them. Yeah, Olympics.
2: someone said that. So you, like, you're all sick. So you'd be the fastest sick person then in Europe. And like... Yes I am, thank you very much The title of my book is going to be The fastest sick person in Europe or something like that I love that
1: What do you do next then? What happens next in your life after you get the second kidney?
2: The second kidney transplant, I'm engaged And like uh, forefront in my mind is a banana, and apple sandwich A pint of Guinness uh, to travel as much as possible Why could you not have banana? banana Oh my god, yeah Hang on, a banana and apple sandwich? (laughs) Sugar, yeah uh, yeah, that's one thing that we used to have when we were young. Banana with very thinly sliced apples. So you have the softness and you have the crunch. Tiny bit of sugar on top. Beautiful sandwich. Yeah. A,
1: ba- a banana and apple An sandwich. Ailing cauli special, yeah. Do you not? know? Is that just me? Oh, I need to try that now. <laughs> That's, a, that's all you were dreaming of A banana and apple sandwich Yeah a pint uh, My in
2: diet on dialysis Again just to remind people That uh, dialysis meant I couldn't eat whatever I wanted a Very strict diet If I wanted potatoes I'd have had to Peel the potatoes Chop them up Boil them in water Empty out the water Boil them again And then eat the Pure the mush. Dry. Pure rubbish Vegetables oh. You had to Parboil them Boil them twice so I end up eating a lot of pasta, plain foods like biscuits and buns, and plain food. The plainer, the better. The and less h- salads and vegetables, the better. How did you say st- say stay so thin just from being active? I was I I was very active, and it's very hard to put on weight on dialysis because you're, again you're kind of kept at a weight as such. You know, oh, so it's, okay. a, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, again, like I did go out drinking once a week. I did do stuff I shouldn't have done, but on the whole, I was playing sport. I was being active. I was. I was a healthiest dialysis patient in Europe, in my opinion. I I was really very keen due to the books I was reading, positivity, you know. To
1: what did to. you work out then? When from then on, when you had your second kidney, did anything change work wise?
2: <clears throat> well, over the years, I started helping out in the little family business with my father. So doing tours, uh, driving buses, talking, talking, yeah. Well, if I was bringing a group of people uh, to you say from a hotel to knock. Instead of just driving them there, I'd tell them all these stories about knock or about myself or about funny, light-hearted stories of which I've no end of, you know. And uh, they were very much entertained, had a great experience, and I might get a little tip at the end of it. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't do it for that reason, but it's a positive side effect. So, yeah, again, I was so confident, and i practice my confidence on peep- strangers on a bus. I'd take up the microphone and sure... You'd often have these golden years people from Westport Woods Hotel or from the Castlecourt Hotel, and uh they were great characters. They were all from Dublin. They were all just but
1: fun. And when I had you on my bus, so that we had two buses going from Westport to Belmullet, and me and you decided, <coughs> I'll take one bus, you take the other, and we'll swap over halfway. So we swapped over halfway, and I got onto the bus, and half the bus were were crying. <laughs> they they were weren't <laughs> crying. <laughs> they were all in tears. No, I, what kind of motivational speaking is this? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Information without emotion is not retained So I, I do bring a lot of emotion into talks Yeah, definitely Right Because I think yeah, you have to hit people in the heart With the reality of life Which are not always good We all have these pain points in life But uh, what can you learn from the pain points? You have to pick the pocket of whatever adversity visits you Of all the good things out of it And that's, that's what I do Like when I was on dialysis I ended up in a room on dialysis So I kind of s- turned it on its head Oh great, I have three hours to myself ...in a private room with no one to bother me. So the first hour was spent reading. Second hour I was starting to get tired and I'd watch something. And then the last hour I'd sleep. So like I really missed that. You think you'll pencil it into normal life but you don't do it. I really missed that about dialysis. So I found all the positives I could get on dialysis. Also if I went out drinking the night before... Dialysis would cure all that. It would suck all the badness out. So that was another positive side effect. So I'd always try and see the good. I turned my attitude totally around. So many people in Ireland, they can come up with 10 reasons why you shouldn't do something, you
1: know, instead of focusing on what you can do. I know you're a busy dad now and a busy husband, but do you ever give yourself that time again? I t- try to. It's a lot harder, yeah.
2: Because I'd like to spend time with my wife, and we don't do enough of that. We give out to each other for not going to the cinema we have to make time for it when the kids are in bed I go for a walk in the pitch dark I don't even bring a light you know nice quiet country road outside Westport uh, but we can't do it together unfortunately because someone ha- and you have to get babysitters and you can't be getting babysitters you have to save them up for when you really need them so like they're, they're the challenges it's not as easy No, I, I did last year I took a little bit of a challenge last year I had a transplant 10 years and on the day of my birthday which was the 1st of February uh My transplant was on the 10th of February. And coincidentally, a neighbour, Cormac, Cahalloran up the road, he said, I'm after reading this Wim Hof kind of guy. And he said, he talks about getting into the ocean every day and going into ice cold baths. And it was a freezing cold day on the 1st of February. And he persuaded me to go in with him. You you live close to the sea? Very close, yeah. A couple of hundred metres, yeah. And... I went with him like. Because I had read this Wim Hof guy and there was another Damien Brown. Do you know Damien Brown? I, don't, I know the name, that's Yeah, all. he's the guy that rode the Atlantic there lately. An animal of a man. Brilliant guy. And so we decided to follow him. Cormac was raising money for him and I was going to do 10 days in honour of my transplant. Just to show people what you can do, you know, even if you're sick or even if you have problems, you know.
1: You were going to do 10 days in the ice cold water?
2: In the Atlantic, over winter, yeah. In February the 1st to the 10th. And so in the pitch dark we got into the how long did you stay in for? Uh, we did a minute the first day. And then we did that's two minutes. a long time in oh, freeze and cold water. It was horrible, water. yeah, yeah. We ended up doing 100 days in a row. All of February, all March, all April. And, and raising money as you go? He ra- Cormac raised money and I was raising awareness. So I got articles in the Irish Times and the front page of the Mail News and different things like that to just to show the gift of life. Donor awareness. Carry a donor card. Or consider it, anyway. Have the chat. Because that's, that's the message for everyone, for me. It's... Uh, be a donor, or consider being a donor, or talk about it, and that was it. Any picture you saw of me around that time was carrying a donor cart, and I hated every day of it. It was very good for me, very healthy, but it's 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 tough. Did you hate it? I didn't like getting in. No, I never enjoyed it. Yeah, it's like
1: writing. I suppose you know, it's, you love having done it even now because I saw you were in the water on on New Year's Day. Yeah, you, you looked to me like somebody who enjoyed doing it. Ah, that's that's
2: the face. Yeah, But yeah. you don't.
1: I love a challenge.
2: Yeah, and it wouldn't be a challenge if I enjoyed it. It's not going to the sunny beach. You couldn't do it in Portugal. You know, it was freezing cold. Christmas Day, we went in at nine in the morning and it was horrible. Like, you know, it's freezing cold. It's choppy. You have to hold on to the barrier some days because it's stormy. And uh, it was just to kind of to shake life up a bit sometimes you get a bit lethargic a bit laid back and this was something we did to kind of shake the shite out of, our, of each other what? and during lockdown it was very important to do stuff like that to kind of not to get stale mental health wise
1: excuse my ignorance now but what's the longevity of a second kidney could you have this one for life or is there a chance no
2: no is the honest answer yeah the first kidney lasted less than 2 years <clears throat> this one is already on 11 years it could last 20, 30 I was at a One of the best parties I was ever at in my life was just before Christmas where a lady from Westport, who now lives in London, came back to Westport and her and her brother had a 40th anniversary of their kidney transplant. And like, there you go. That's the kind of positivity I need in my life. That sort of, to have a party for a successful transplant for 40 years. Now, they were brother and sister. Uh, I got one, obviously, someone passed away. And uh, it was a stranger to me, obviously. But they had made the decision that if anything ever happened to them, the gift of life is what they wanted to pass on to other people. And that's what they did. Like, uh, You might know this, but how do you thank someone you don't know? And so the uh, there's the kidney transplant kind of unit up there. You write a letter to the family of the person that died. And you send that letter to the transplant coordinator. And they send the letter anonymously then to the family. And that's a letter now that took me a while to write. Yeah. How do you, how do you portray the best, pretty much the best day of your life, getting a transplant, the gift of life? I was about to get married. All these positive things to the person who's just lost the person they love most in the world. <laughs> Can you tell us what it's you wrote in it? Uh, it was, it was hard. It was hard to write it because you you're trying to balance that. Uh, uh, I know you lost your loved one. Uh, and I'm gonna. I have, you know, I can now live this life. I just got engaged, you know. I'm now gonna have kids. I'm an active member of our community. I try to be, and uh, hopefully, some of these benefits and some of this positive living that I do will will make you feel a bit less sorrowful for the person that died. It's hard getting them, you know. It's hard to talk about it, because you know, like if if someone belonged to me died, you know, it's heartbreaking and uh, someone and you know it's probably more than likely it was a young person because I got a young person's you know kidney
1: well I hope that did give them some comfort
2: I think so I, I know so because I know people who have lost someone and have got that letter and it brought enormous enormous kind of help to them in you know there's people walking around and alive and well and thriving uh, and that that person was going to die you know, so
1: Isn't it mad to think that <clears throat> organ donation isn't just a compulsive thing and that you nearly need to sign a box if you don't want it? Because That's kind of the case now. That's what's coming in. Is it?
2: Yeah, and I don't know how I feel about that. Why? Why? Because it wasn't a compulsive thing or a compulsory thing that this person compulsory did. Compulsory thing, yeah. Compulsory. They thought about it. They had a chat with their family and they said, if God forbid anything happens to me, I want to save the lives of other people. I want to give the gift of life So that's why I signed a donor card That's what they did Consciously So uh, It's a great start to your To this new organ that you have That um, In in the family's darkest hour They lit up the lives Of so many other people yeah. It's not just me It's my family It's my community You know It was uh, nine years on dialysis Everyone knew me I'm the sick guy You know and Oh did you hear Darren Cawley got a transplant Oh fantastic I was on Midwest I was on everything You know It's terrific Yeah So there's great It offers great solace Yeah
1: It's not something I ever considered It never even came into my head Why would you Being an organ donor But now I think Why would I Like why would anyone not Well the alternative is The worms Yeah You go in the
2: ground Yeah It seems like an awful waste Yeah it is an awful waste. And that's why they're making it, not compulsory, but everybody who passes away under certain conditions that their brain stem dead, but that their body hasn't died out yet. You know, they're being kept alive by a machine. And um, everybody now will be asked, would you consider, or have they ever talked about being a donor? And the family can say, no, there's no problem. It's not a compulsory thing. Uh, you know, the language is very important there, but it's just offering up The fact that this is available, and part of your loved one will live on in an incredibly positive way. Yeah, like in America, it's and and people send me these videos, and please don't. It's far too emotional. It's too close to bone to me. But people who have had heart transplants meet the family of the person who died, and the person, their family go up and they hug their chest and they feel the beating heart. Of uh, it's just too much for me. I can't handle that at all. Like, yeah, secretly
1: I'm quite an emotional person. What are you doing now then? Are you Mm. still doing motivational talks or? Well, that was going really, really well. I was out in Madrid
2: in 2019, was it, at a speaking event and I got loads of offers to come here, there and everywhere and then COVID. Right. And that all stopped. That speaking kind of circuit stuff totally stopped. And uh, over that time, I did numerous other things. My family, again, the bus business and it's it's not a very easy business to be in, driving buses because you work at night and you work weekends and you work day night overnight you're all over the place and now i have a family with two small kids and it's not a, it's not the the healthiest thing either for the me.
1: margins are small in the bus business as well ah uh, yeah you wouldn't you won't get rich
2: yeah. and it's it causes a lot of anxiety and discomfort between a, in our relationship because you don't know where you're going to be tomorrow <laughs> a lot of the time you don't get paid if you don't work it's a lot of it's not a nice career now you can make money on it perfect if you're younger single older single whatever you can do that but for me, I, 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 it wasn't the suitable thing. So I, um, over the last few years, I went back. I did my degree, but like I had no interest in it. What was the degree in? In sports and fitness studies. So i went back to NUIG in 2015. and I did a master's in health promotion. Was that full time? Full time, one year. Yeah, flat out. And, uh, and I loved Up and it. down to Galway every day? Uh, t- two days a week. Two or three days a week, something like that, yeah. So that was a, a big challenge because I hadn't used my head in any. No, I'm into
1: continuous education. I did loads of courses, smaller courses, tourism, marketing, That's religion, loads of stuff. Tough on the relationship too, though, and it takes an understanding wife to to accept that you're going back to college two days a week and you won't be you won't be out working.
2: Yeah, well, we hadn't kids at the time. I think that was a big oh okay. a big aspect of easier, it. slightly easier, slightly easier, yeah. yeah. And I wanted to challenge, and I needed to do something to see, was the brain still working? And it was, I loved it. Did very well, passed everything, got a great score. And uh, so I, the idea was to go further into the speaking in schools and companies and organisations and the motivational talks, uh, to have an academic background, to go with the personal experience. Because a lot of, like, mainly I speak in pharma companies. I talk to the staff because they don't really see the meaning in the work that they do. And I show them I'm alive and well because of what you do every day like going into baxter there in castle bar it's a great example or elegant like baxter actually makes products that was used on me on dialysis you know you see the baxter boxes and they have no idea a thousand staff like they're just we, working on a line they're working online they don't like it there's no motivation and uh, they're just working for a paycheck or to make sure they don't get in trouble from the boss and after i talk to them I very much hope the case is they're intrinsically motivated. If they don't do their job perfectly well, I'll end up getting sick. Every product is a person. That was my kind of motto, my message. Everything you touch, everything that goes by you, ends up either attached to or inside a person. And that's very emotional for people to kind of suddenly realise, oh my God, right, I'm not just working for a paycheck. You know, I'm saving lives, I'm helping people live,
1: I'm giving life. But a company like Baxter would have to bring somebody like you in every six months because... You get complacent and no matter who talks to you in six months time, you're like, oh, fuck this job. Yeah,
2: you think so. But it's not done enough. The patient advocate, a lot of these places just have a picture of a good looking patient on the wall. You know, (laughs) we do it all for the patient. And he's he's just a model. He's just a model. It's not ingrained. So I'm very proud of the fact that what I've heard after my talks and how it's kind of been internalized to a lot of people. Uh, they won't make a mistake because they know that could end up inside Darren it you know I'm a representative of the people so that's a it's kind of it's nice to do work that you feel is having making an impact and having a difference
1: and after NUIG then did you what are you working at what, what did you do then well
2: I continued in the family business because it was flexible that I could do the talks and then after lockdown I was kind of crap I don't want to continue in the bus line of work <clears throat> and so like I did SNA because I did teach it before and I thought that might be something positive I started working in Westport House, which is a place I used to go to as a kid for all summer long. So I loved it. So that was, I loved going in there. And then uh, Stephen
1: Clark. Westport House, first of all, is the biggest tourist attraction in Westport. The, Absolutely. It's yeah. definitely the biggest paid tourist attraction after uh, Cro-Patrick. Big numbers, yeah, yeah. Huge numbers. Yeah, yeah. It's the place to go. Growing up, we used to go there every... year, Yeah. We, there used to be a zoo. Yeah. And we used to go back to the zoo. Then you'd go every Easter because Pinky the Rabbit... Was this big uh rabbit that would come out and try and hug you, yeah, yeah. yeah, and then every Christmas we'd go and see Santa, yeah, so Westward house was just it's everyone, I think the majority of people in Mayo, certainly in the Westport catchment area, have very, very fond memories yeah. of Westport house. It's just a lovely place,
2: and suddenly, I had the
1: key to the place, I was opening the doors like and that was just and it has a huge story because obviously that the I'm not going to tell you your job now, but the dungeons <laughs> are the same dungeons from Grony Wales Castle. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, Westbrook House was built on top of Grony Wales, where her castle was, one of her castles.
1: And like spectacular history there. The whole Groenew Wales story. She's a pirate queen. Yeah. Ruled over all of Clue Bay. She met the queen in, in queen England. Queen Elizabeth,
2: yeah. And her family still live around the estate today. Her descendants still live around Mayo. You know, it's it's uh, it's, in, it's captivating for someone like me who always loved history.
1: You told me a story where one of their descendants is working in a coffee shop. One of Gronnywael's descendants. Yeah. What was
2: yeah. What What was her relation again? Uh, I think the fourteenth great 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 great
1: granddaughter. The fourteenth great granddaughter yeah. is working in this yeah. shop, and like I'm not going to mention the shop or mention her, obviously. But when you stand back and look at her, she's this tall striking, beautiful, red-haired lady. <laughs> yeah. And you cannot help to consider the the myth, the legend. Yeah, not a myth. Oh, not yeah, a myth. Yeah, not a myth. not a myth. Not a myth
2: at all. Very real, yeah. I'm very much of the belief we should be bringing her back more and more as a female role model because there's none of them in history. There's no female role models in Irish history. I, I don't think there's... There's so.
1: another podcast in it, but for anyone who doesn't know, this is a lady who, who snuck onto a pirate ship. There was no ladies allowed on the pirate ship and had to shave her head to pretend to be one of the lads... And fit in, isn't that right? That's right, yeah, dressed as a boy. And I think, I like to think, I like to tell
2: people, her dad, instead of then uh, then giving out and being angry with her, rather kind of seeing the the ingenuity and the courage and the bravery in this young 12 or 9-year-old, I'm not sure the age, and instead of kicking her off the boat, he trained her up with the lads to be a soldier and a sailor, and she went on to become the chieftain of the O'Malley clan, the the, the Irish clan in the west of Ireland. And probably the last one, of the great Irish chieftains. She never took the knee, she never bowed, she never ran.
1: An incredible story how a woman went into, now it wasn't male dominated, it was 100% male. 100%, yeah. 100% took yeah. it by the reins and ended up becoming the chieftain. Yeah. What an incredible story!
2: Yeah, and I don't even t- there's another girl mooring there working in Westford House. She loves, lives, and breathes. She warns people this tour is going to be more about Whale than it will be about the the Brown family that are. I heard a story house.
1: where <clears throat> Whale used to park her boat so the water goes right up to the house, and <laughs> I heard a story and I don't know if this is a myth, but she used to tie her boat to the bedpost of her bed. Yeah, if anyone stole her boat, she'd feel it. Away, moving, yeah, yeah. That's definitely one of the stories. Yeah, it's incredible.
2: Yeah, other great stories about her, and very much Westport House are hoping to build an interpretive centre to Grace O'Malley, and I hope they kind of add on a kind of a female leadership institute with that. Yeah because I think there's definitely an opening to try and uh, use the attributes which she had. Bravery, courage, tenacity, uh, the ability to lead, not just women, not just men, everybody. She led that community at the time. So there's a huge positives to be pulled out and passed on to young women, especially today.
1: What's that story, very quickly, where she met the Queen and she wouldn't, she wouldn't bow to her, was it?
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, this is, it's not a, a legend, but there's not a lot of information. I'd say 80% of the information from the book that was written about Graunewale by Anne Chambers over 40 years ago is based on the English records. Because Ireland, being in Ireland, a good Christian Catholic country, she was written out of the history. She became a footnote of history. So she, one of her sons, two of her sons, one was killed, one was kidnapped by the sheriff of Connacht, Richard Bingham. And uh, that was his way of getting to Grace O'Malley. And so Gráinne she set off on her ship. And long story, she ended up meeting the Queen.
1: She was the villain, really. She
2: was the massive villain.
1: So the... the, the For
2: 40 years, she was the... Mafia boss. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. She was the, the kind of rebel in that, in that area. And yeah. no one could arrest her or do anything. They tried their best. From what we know about it so, so she, she was on the run then effectively all her life a lot of it yeah yeah. but again uh, the English were very much part of the other the rest of Ireland because it was more good land very profitable Connacht wasn't to hell or to Connacht it wasn't the best of land in the best of area
1: and she had a castle in Westport House she had a castle in Clare Island yeah she had a castle down in Ackle Island yeah God only knows how another
2: many one probably outside Westport there Bershul and Bershul then another one yeah. and you can visit
1: these castles like <coughs> they're, they're all still some of them there. are ruined some of
2: them are gone some of them yeah. are very much still there you can walk into yeah. the one in Achille yeah, and look yeah. up yeah. it's incredible A small tower castle and you can see how you'd be hidden away through all the drumlins and the islands and,
1: and you can see the view you can imagine why she built it there or why it was built there especially the one on Clare Island when you land at the port yeah. that's definitely one worth visiting so what's the story mm-hmm. then when she met the Queen well when she met the Queen we believe uh, she didn't bow before
2: her you know, she felt it was queen to queen. And of course, the Queen of England couldn't speak Irish. And they say Grania Whale well, couldn't speak English. So they conversed in Latin. So again, she wasn't some ignorant little country girl from the west of Ireland. She was well educated. Uh, she could speak Latin and they conversed. And the Queen was quite taken with her. And the historical evidence, I would think, shows that Richard Bingham, the guy who kidnapped her son, he was brought back to England and her son was released, Tibone along, Toby of the Boats. But she wasn't a queen. No, but the chieftain was the queen of her area. She was the king. She was the lord of, of Connacht. This part of, well, this part of Connacht, we we'll say, yeah. along the Clue Bay shore. Yeah, it's a fabulous story. It's incredible.
1: <clears throat> and you're doing a bit then with Westport Walking Tours, and just yeah, just for yeah. complete disclosure <clears throat> here, my brother owns Westport Walking Tours, and I've always said that on Instagram and everything. Whenever we we talk about it, because people can jump down your throat and say this is an ad. It's not an ad. But that's how I became. That's how I uh, how I've. Uh, become to know you Yeah, is being a tour guide with Westport Walking Tours. Yeah, that
2: again was a revelation. You know, he asked me to do a few bits because I started working Westport House and it was just the odd tour. And, oh, absolutely loved it. I learned so much myself. Years driving around the town in a bus, talking rubbish. I now had a few historical facts and figures. And Westport, obviously, is the best place to live in Ireland. And my job doing the walking tours is just to prove that to people.
1: You really take that job, though, and make it your own, don't you? Like, you've really settled into that like you seem so at home with it when you're and I've watched you and I've been on your tour you're so proud to give that tour you're yeah. not you're not it's not a job to you <laughs> not at all not at you all. are and I see you when you stand up down at the wall then down the mall it's it's really incredible to see how proud you are talking about it yeah talking about Westport I am born and reared, like I'd be telling stories about throwing
2: school bags into the river on the last day of school, because these are things we did. When the ice covered the mall entirely, you know, I remember walking across the river. You know, it's impossible, but that's... These little stories, and as a Westport person, I can tell them, because they're they're my stories, they're my truth. And you walk around... Like, it's not a historical tour. It's You're meeting the different characters around the town. The number one thing said to me, believe it or not, on the tour is... Don't believe an effing word he says. <laughs> people roll down the windows, friends, and just having the crack. I don't believe that fecker, he's full of shite. You know, and the people kind of love it because it's real. It's not staged, it's not put on. And you're just telling a little bit of history, a little bit of the social and kind of cultural background of the West of Ireland and the people who live in it. And like, that's not a job. That's, that's easy.
1: I brought a gang to Westport and we all did a tour with you and one of the things you told us about the, the crossings, they're not actually pedestrian crossings in Westport. Yeah. They're just they're just crossings. Courtesy crossings. Courtesy crossings. Could
2: you be more vague, yeah.
1: Yeah. But people walk across them thinking they might be pedestrian crossings, but the car isn't obliged to stop. No. And you told everyone on the tour, look out for an MO plate, because if it's an MO plate, they're more than likely local and they more than likely will stop. But the other plates don't. Yeah. Is that true? That's 100% true. <laughs> I tell people, yeah, if you like
2: an adventure holiday, you like to live on the edge, just try and cross the road in front of a reg car. And uh, that creates great crack within the group. You but know? the
1: reason I brought it up was because the next day we were all walking around the town and some of the gang in, in the group would say, oh, what reg is it? Yeah, And it stuck with them for the weekend yeah. every time because whatever you're doing in Westport, you have to cross the road a few times. And there's plenty of these courtesy crossings. They're, they're all over the place. But it was lovely that that stuck with them. And it's a great game for tourists who aren't from Ireland because they start learning off all the counties yeah.
2: from the license plates, M-O-S, Sligo, whatever. You know, you go along through them all. So that's the kind of stuff you're, you're giving them, not just the historical stuff because they're not on a school tour. They don't want to be bogged down with history and facts and figures. They want a bit of life, bringing history to life.
1: So at the moment, you're doing a bit of S&A work. Yeah. You're doing a bit of work with um, Westport House. A little bit. And then doing a little bit of work with Westport Walking Tours. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. not Because yeah. t- they're not the kind of jobs that can... They're not jobs during the winter, obviously. No, They're, they're just no, not. No,
2: that's, that's my, my problem since I moved away from the buses is I'm looking for a job because lifestyle is family is very important to me. I don't want to be stressed to the hilt. Uh, I want a job I love. I feel like I'm built for certain things and I kind of fell into a few potential jobs that can do that. Uh, none of them are perfect, like myself, uh, but hopefully we, we'll, I'll figure that out.
1: If you could build your dream job, what would it be?
2: Uh, well, from the last few years, it would be tourism, yeah, because I love meeting people. I'd hate to be stuck in an office day, and I, I'd like to be out mixing and having fun with people. And uh, there's a certain integrity uh, in that, in that I don't have to make stuff
1: up. Is that very small time, though? I thought you would have said international motivational speaking. Getting paid to fly around the world, giving big, huge talks, getting big, huge paychecks.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a kind of contrast there. There's a, a dichotomy in that I love doing the talks and I love, say, doing the tours of the town and I love promoting donor awareness. I don't necessarily want to be an influencer or some big famous person. You love the trappings of having a, uh, like I will always say, I was never been burdened by excess of money. To my wife's disgrace Disgust <laughs> But I've never been burdened With too much money And that's something I have to start thinking I used to do all these Free talks all over the place And I hadn't a pot to piss in mm. And that's the story of my life I, I'm not driven by money I find it very hard To get motivated To get job To make loads of money
1: It's hard to get people To respect that Because I was asked To give a talk On an island Off the coast of Donegal once And I've never given a talk On anything And whatever mood they got me in this particular day, I agreed to do it. Because I'm like you at the start. I wouldn't be able to give a talk. I wouldn't be able... I can talk on the radio to 100,000 people. I can talk on a podcast here. Mm -hmm. This is downloaded 15,000 times a week. But you put me in a room with 15 people. I I can't talk. But when it came to it, I said, yeah, I'll do it. They wanted me to go up and give a talk to TYs. And I think it was about giving a talk on the, the negative side to social media. Because so many teenagers now in school are saying I want to be a YouTuber or I want to be an influencer and I think there was some study where I can't remember the exact figure but it might have been one in three it could have been more I don't know and teachers were kind of getting a bit worried that they only see the good side they only see influencers with their big cars and all the good stories but they don't see the DMs and I'm very much about sharing the good and the bad if I get a negative message like the first one I got on last Monday morning was yeah you're all about the fame You know, and anyone that knows me knows that if I go into a pub, I look for a corner seat and I want to hide down in the corner. I don't want to be at the front door where everyone's coming in and out and anyone recognising you or seeing you or or having to pose or anything like that. I'm not about that. But back to the story where I was invited to this school, I uh, said, yeah, I'll do it. And obviously it was a full day to get up to Donegal, cross over, get onto the island, blah, blah. So I said, look, sure, if you cover my expenses, I'll go and do it. And they said, no. Oh, wow. We can't cover your expenses. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, there must be a lot of that as well. Like people not seeing the value in giving a talk. There's a huge amount. i sure he's only talking for 20 minutes. Mm. It's like the Picasso story, you know, as
2: so he drew a picture for someone on a postcard.
1: But they're not putting value on the 20 years experience exactly. that you're going that's, to talk that's about. That's
2: the point. Yeah, yeah. I've 24 years now living with kidney failure. I have degrees. I have masters. I have great life experience. And I turn people's perspectives yeah. I give them a different perspective, always positive, outgoing, as in don't fear challenges, don't fear problems, because they're the hurdle that will let you grow as a person. And that's very much, like I spent lockdown, a lot of it, coming up with it, a kind of online course for people with kidney failure, my my tribe, my people. Uh, and it was called From Victimhood to Resilience. And that's what I felt. I felt like a victim when I got kidney failure. It why was, you, why it me? It wasn't my fault. It wasn't, nobody gets kidney failure because of drugs or alcohol, really. It's because of just a virus or some random thing happened or they inherit some disease so I felt like a victim because I'd done nothing wrong I was a sports student very healthy and that's my story from victimhood to, to to give that transformation into resilience so to use adversity to create growth in yourself so come out the other side with coping skills with resilience with uh for me speaking
1: confidence and this was going to be an online course
2: yeah I've, I've that done so I have to continue on with it you know I thankfully another friend uh, Paul Feeney the Bodhi kind of thing and he he helped me structure it he talked me through it he got me to do all this writing and uh, that's again was great for my own personal confidence I did something new and I love the idea of doing the online course because I'm not going to be some famous person because it's just for my own little private group to try and help people who suffer adversity like I did. And are you doing that? I am in the process of doing it. Lockdown knocked the shit out of a lot of things. But it's there, like, I've done the writing, kind of. So it's getting it out into the world. And, you and again, s- I'm not, I don't want to be a millionaire. I have no interest in that. But again, it did cost a lot of money to do it. So there's the two sides. You have to ask for money at some stage to, in order to keep doing the good work that you're
1: doing. But there's there's a, there's a almost... um. There's a kind of a... Is it an Irish thing where you are almost afraid to ask for money? Yeah. And then they take advantage and don't give you money. Absolutely. Pat
2: on the back. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Well, what I do
2: now, if if I did if I did go into a local school or something and give a free talk, they'll get an invoice for whatever amount of money it should be, and I, I'll write it as, as complimentary, 0.00, right? So they didn't get a free talk. They got a talk worth whatever amount of money... At at this, at at, uh, kind of free gratis because of the relationship we have together, whatever, you know. So I want them to value the time I spent and the time. I want them to value that you're not getting a free speaker. You're getting a a very expensive speaker who does a lot
1: of good work, but you're getting it for free. What's the thinking behind that, that you might get paid for the next one?
2: No, no, it's just appreciation. Because if you're a, a free speaker, you're a pain in the ass, someone we have to facilitate and look after. But if you're a, a speaker that costs thousands, we'll say, not that I do, yeah. but you cost thousands, oh shit, he's coming in for free. Wow, that's, thanks very much. What can we do? How can we help you? They respect that much. So well, you have to put the kind of value over the cost.
1: You seem to be a very driven man, but also slightly, uh, a slight procrastinator as well. Yeah. I think if you could give 10 tours a day, you would do it. But if I asked you to write a book, you'd put it off and put it off and put it off.
2: Yeah, yeah. So many people say write the book, and it's not just <laughs> I have so many different books in my head. Like it's not just writing the book; it's uh, it could be very beneficial down the road, you know, because that's what speakers do. They write books, and you become a speaker, and you you get your message out there through that. But it's know. Uh, oh, no, I, I hate being alone. That's the biggest problem. The public speaking, the motivational talks, there's no one else really, not many people doing it. around. There's no one to call to their house. Like my friend Paul now has just started, so it's great, we have great chats about that. But before that, for years, it's a lonely... It's a lonely kind of occupation. But if you could... Alan, if you said to me, I have 20 talks for you in the next few years, like, oh, brilliant, just put me in front of the stage and let me talk, great. But doing invoices and tax and all this, I just, no, I don't want to, I just... I hate being alone. I'd rather be in a community, in a business,
1: like with other people. Yeah, but you can get people to help you with the invoicing and all that kind of thing. You don't have to be doing that. Yeah, I just haven't figured that out. Yeah. I'll help you with that. All right. I mean that now. Yeah. Genuinely, right. because I I do it myself and I do the in, and I hate that. I hate the invoicing and the paperwork at the end of the month. I yeah. I put it off, but I'd hate to see I'd hate to see it stopping someone like you because there's apps and there's websites and things. It's made so easy for people now, the yeah. invoicing. But I'd hate to see that stopping you.
2: Yeah, I just, maths and to do with figures, I, I'm not that, I just cannot do that. And it's, it's disheartening when you go into a company and you get a standing ovation. Like, and they're just crying out saying how brilliant and how emotional and we're going to work hard and we're going to make a difference. Because I know that has a knock on effect.
1: Well, there's a website. I think you put in your address and you put in their address and you put in the figure and you put in their email address and they get an email saying you owe us this <laughs> amount of money. And it's very straightforward. So I'll help you with that. Are you afraid of possibly becoming famous or having to set up a, a public profile on social media? I'm shuffling in the seat here. I, 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 maybe I am. Yeah, I, I would love to be
2: the anonymous guy making money. Brilliant. But uh, the way modern society is with all the Instagram and impressing other people, uh, it's not real compared to the life I've just lived.
1: But there are people on social media that are real. Just because you're on social media doesn't mean you're not real.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem like it sometimes.
1: The, I, I 100% agree with you, but your per- the perception of Darren Cawley on social media is what you put out there. Yeah. So... If people people watching you will only see what you give them. I know what you're saying, but it, it
2: it feels like you have to push out there and you have to create the reels and you have to do all this outward stuff, which it's not exactly natural. Creating it, creating the reels. There's an empathy. There's a no an authenticity. Then sometimes you're questioning yourself. But it's a game, and that's the game. It seems you have to play, and I don't really like it. I don't really like it
1: that's really interesting I find that fascinating because you want to help people and you want to be a speaker but the social media thing scares you and you're afraid of becoming something different
2: well I don't know I think I've figured out a skill set and I'm good at talking I'm good at standing up in front of rooms of people it could be 50 people or it could be oh, like abroad it could be thousands of people and I love that and I get great energy and excitement out of it and then you're, you go in front of a little camera to try and say something. It's, it's, it doesn't seem the same.
1: But you're only using the little camera to put your name out there to get more gigs. Yeah. It's like when you, you do reels for Westworld Walking Tours. You, can, Sometimes, you, you, yeah. go, you go around and you take great photos and great videos and you seem to enjoy it because even when you were down on our walk, you were taking photos and sending them to me and taking really good photos and seeing good opportunities for a good photo Yeah, and just taking them where I was in the moment. I was up to high door trying to uh, make sure 100 people got around a loop and safe. <laughs> but you were taking the photos and sending them on and you you can do that as a tour guide knowing that that reel is what people want to see and will help sell more tours. But you can't do it as a motivational speaker.
2: Well, I think I haven't given myself over to one thing or another. And it's hard. that You don't get great support to do, like, oh, you're going to be a motivational speaker. Like, who, what are you on about? Because no, one, there's no understanding of that here in the West of Ireland, really. Very few people done it. And I have sp- but friends...
1: <laughs> you wouldn't make any money here in the West of Ireland. You wouldn't
2: make any money at all. You and, haven't. like, I get asked to go into schools. I got asked into two schools today. And, like, you know... And I, I couldn't ask for money off them. They're the local schools. I'm delighted to do it, to try and help little people that are going to be... And you do do it. I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Freud and these things. And sometimes they give you money and you say, thank you very much. That's terrific. You didn't have to. And sometimes they don't get money. Thank you very much. I really enjoy doing it. It doesn't matter.
1: I'm not, I'm not vicious. I'm not aggressive enough for this world, maybe. It's not fair that people ask you to give these talks. It's not. It's not fair. Because if they brought in uh, a big footballer... Yeah he might get a few bob and it's just accepted oh we'd have to give him a few bob he's, yeah. a, he's a big yeah. footballer and
2: I've been speaking up in Aviva Stadium and Jim Gavin was on before me and you know he got between 5 and 10,000 and I got a few hundred you know and you're yeah and I was way more impactful because I was specific to the company he was just telling his stories of football and you know it's, it, it is a challenge that I haven't uh, agreed with I, I could do one thing or another if I go full into public speaking and that well then I'm not at home I'm gone all over the place
1: but it's for money
2: and that's, but it's not, I'm not
1: comfortable with that but you could make in one week from one trip you can make enough to keep you going in one trip Yeah. so you're not gone seven days a week you might be gone to Strasbourg for two days yeah. and you don't have to work for ten days
2: there is that element of it yeah there is and, and lo- I have got paid some big money I'd for 20 minute talks
1: I'd love to see you getting big money for talks because you're not a spoofer and the fact that, you know, the fact that you don't really want the money and you don't want the fame uh, makes me admire you even more. You know, you genuinely want to tell the story. You genuinely want to help people.
2: Well, I went through shit and there's lessons to be taken from that. And I don't want you to have to go through the same shit to get that lesson. And that's kind of why I do it. Like, I, there's nothing wrong with adversity. Right. We have to get rid of that. Like, bad things happen. Just just hold on. Wait a few months. Oh, wow. Look what happened because of this adversity.
1: I was DJing years and years and years ago, and I used to get these big nightclub gigs. And I was, I, I, I would say I was a good DJ, and I wouldn't blow smoke up my own arse too often. And, but I would definitely appreciate the things I'm good at. So I was good at DJing. I'm, I'd like to think I'm good at marketing, and that kind of thing. But when I was DJing, I used to have a website, and I used to have my own merch. <laughs> Right now, I had 10 hoodies, right? They were AC hoodies and I had this cool logo and I used to do these mixes. But when I was DJing, no DJs on my level had a website and I had a Facebook page that had about five or six thousand people. Hmm. But then I started getting these big gigs because I was your man that had the website and his own merch and his own mixes. There's a bit of that with you. If you had your website and your social media, and your story out there a little bit more, you might get more work. Or at least if people Googled Darren Cawley and they landed on the nice website, then it's easier to pay him and it's easier to say, well, oh geez, we wouldn't get that fella for nothing. Look at him. He has spoken in Strasbourg and he's spoken in Japan and he's spoken everywhere. That I have a website.
2: Oh, do you? com. Right. Again, my, my buddy Paul did all that and... Uh, it's impressive, but it, it was a process. Like at the time we were doing it, I had the online course, so I have two tracks: online course to help patients, uh, public speaking to help ordinary people, maybe within the pharma healthcare industry. So it was going great until lockdown, and maybe we we hope to come back to it. Like you know, I do. Like I feel embarrassed taking loads of money when you go into these big companies, because it's the easiest thing in the world for me to do it. I love doing it It's a it's, And they pick up on that There's empathy They ask questions at the end And I love the questions Because it's I'm easy. not making
1: you, it up No it's easy for you Because it's your story Darren But Those nine years Come at a price Yeah You've had a shit Time <laughs> of it A really hard life A really tough life A really challenging life You've had to sacrifice So many things So don't ever be afraid Of taking the check Yeah and I'm not Because I'm given value I
2: understand I am given value Like there mm. There's an intrinsic motivation Created in the companies I talk about That they can't get anywhere
1: Right I'm going to finish up now And I'm going to say to you That If you decide That that's the route You want to go down And you say Right I, I want to chase this Motivational speaking thing Yeah I will take on Your social media And I'll help you with that <sighs> And I'll do that. And if you need me to do your invoice, and I'll do that for the first, say, <laughs> month or two at a, at a cost. <laughs> no, I'm money messing. I wouldn't charge or you. you could take what you want it. No, but I, I want to help you. I, I want because you have a good understanding of social media. I know that already from seeing the stuff you do with Westport Walking Tours and with Westport House. But don't let that stop you. Please don't. And don't be afraid of, you know, like you said there a minute ago, people thinking this or people thinking that. People think whatever they want. You know, and people say to you, people say to influencers, oh, you've changed and that influencer might not have changed their, their perception of you might have changed. Yeah. But the part, the influencer might be the exact same person that they always were three years ago or four years ago or five years ago. And the message you put out, it will be your message. It's nothing, there's nothing fake or phony or you're not trying to sell anything. You're not trying to, you're not trying to sell anything fake.
2: No. No,
1: as I like to say, the message and the messenger are the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So you're at an advantage here, and yeah. people. Well, thank
2: you very much. I, I, uh, we'll talk about it. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm have to be a grown up. I feel very immature sometimes in that. Like now, I have a, a wife and two kids, and I have to start thinking about money. I don't like it. It's, it's. I don't know why it is. I just, I'm not driven in that direction, but. I have responsibilities, and I need to start stepping into them responsibilities. If and I pe- am
1: reminded of that at home occasionally. If people had to call EFA to book you, <laughs> then that might be a different story. The money might be easier to get then. It might be easier to get then. But, but again,
2: any money I get, I just it's it's for us. It's not for me. I have no. I understand. Fancy that. clothes.
1: Sure. I'm not into you have a house you have a car you have two kids oh, you have stop, responsibilities yeah. they have bills they have to go to school they have to go to college so yeah. i'm not going to bring it up again i'm not going to mention it to you again but please know that i will support you thank you and i'll do anything i can in terms of social media to get you up and running thank you have you any questions for me Ooh. have i any questions for uh, you well i think you would be
2: a very good speaker <laughs> I think you're, you'd are you be a necessary speaker in, in the evils that you talk about. Uh, young kids are, are delusional. You see it in school. They're absolutely delusional about the reality of the world. Like it used to be a case, <clears throat> I don't want to pick one sex over the other, but young girls wanted to grow up to marry footballers, you know. And now it's boys and girls want to grow up to be influencers uh, because one in every million person makes money. <laughs> And they don't know that They need to be told that There's a very valuable lesson there Cyber security And the reality of behind the scenes I think that's something you should Very much consider And I think the other thing is You know When are you going to get an EFA? When am I going to get an EFA? Yeah
1: (laughs) When are you you single? (laughs) Oh I'm not going down this road Why? You're the housewife's choice You know Come on What are you talking about? No 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 Sure no 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 Sure who'd want to be with me? That's that's not yeah.
2: ki- That's a silly statement now. That there's a thousands of girls out there going, "What is wrong with them?
1: What's wrong with me? Yeah, what's nothing, wrong? Nothing is wrong with you. You what? seem too perfect. What's is wrong? that? It no. What's wrong with me? Is I have plenty of complexes. I have insecurities and anxieties and um, all these different things. And uh, I broke up with a girl before lockdown, and I was crazy about her, and it, it didn't work out. And then. Um, this is probably the longest I've ever been single because I always went from well, from one relationship to another, so to speak, and then I just got yeah. so bogged down with wanting to set up the clothes company mm. in the northern hemisphere that nothing was going to stand in my way because um i was just I was just sick of making other people money, and I was sick of being that guy, and I was sick of. Of just being your man that, you know, you're supposed to make us money. That's why we're paying you. Yeah. And that was said to me one day, you know, it was said to me one day, your man is sitting over there in the corner and he hasn't made us any money. Now, this particular company I was working for, I was making them huge money wow. and, and I was I was increasing their profile and increasing X, Y and Z. But your man that said it and he said it and I heard him saying it. Right. I was sitting here. He was at the door and he goes, your man is in the corner there and he's not making us money. And that day I said. Fuck this. Yeah. Um, and I was so driven after that to set up Northern Hemisphere and then I put the wheels in motion to do that. And that has just taken over my life. Yeah. I need some of that. I need some of that drive. You know,
2: maybe I need someone to shout at me and say something horrible, you know. Yeah. But no, you should, I don't know.
1: What if I shouted at you? You'll never be an international speaker. Really?
2: I, mm. I would probably need a challenge like that. Never. <laughs> nah, don't I start. don't think you have it in you. <laughs> Listen, we can get them to bring back the Not Bureau If, that, if you think that'll help You know, I, I have connections
1: there No, hopefully this year now um, <coughs> yeah. my, my, goal, my goal this year is to I'd love I'd, You know, I'm working so hard To make Northern Hemisphere work Yeah, I'm really I, I'm a hard worker I've always worked hard But I am putting 200% into this okay. Morning, noon and night I'm up until the middle of the night Doing things that people don't see And my goal this year is to Take a step back potentially hire someone part-time that can give me more freedom to grow it further that I'm not in packing bags yeah <laughs> and then hopefully potentially meet somebody and buy a house great in the next two to three years but yeah if I was to give any advice
2: is to don't stop interviewing for the position of <laughs> girlfriend you know like don't go at the 200% you know leave a little leave a few percent for to be open to the Possibility It's like, a great
1: experience uh, It's incredible that that's the question you asked Because it becomes this big thing Yeah And everyone Everyone I, everyone I talk to says it. Everyone, it It's like You're you're your man that's single You're your man from Instagram And you're single And then it becomes this thing where You know somebody asked me Before there was a thing going around apparently That I was asexual <laughs> You know and then people see you with a lad for lunch And then they say Oh he must be gay Yeah it it does It becomes this big huge thing well,
2: f- Where I'm coming from Is the fact that I Kidney failure You know I'll never get married I'll never have kids I'll never do any of that You know I was in that place yeah. I'll never get to do any of that And like To have it now To go home tonight Look in the room With two little kids Wife Happily there You know it, it, It's a real revelation It's kind of one of the highlights Of life Because again It means so much more to me now Than it would have meant As just going along So I, I just love the fact that um you know, when you give things time, things work out. Yeah. Once you're open.
1: I know, I'd love kids yeah. and I would love to meet somebody and you know I'm not that bothered about getting married, Renton. If she wanted to get married, I'd get married. Yeah. That kind of stuff doesn't bother yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to be I, I just I I couldn't get into it last year because I couldn't give it the attention it deserved. And then I couldn't give Northern Hemisphere the attention it deserved.
2: Because there's a lot of lads out there too Just asking Why why the fuck should you be happy?
1: Why, sh- oh me? Yeah, being single While the rest of us are married <laughs> Cut that out Don't <laughs> say it Oh, I get it it's now It's getting late yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah And a lot of married men Then want to live through you You know yeah. Oh, you must be having great crack Oh, yeah. you divil, yeah I get that a lot Where married men are Jeez, you must be doing savage damage Because you <laughs> have Because you have so many followers on Instagram Yeah And then you're doing You're doing no damage at all, really That's what it's all about yeah. But they just assume I will make it up, yeah. Darren, what's your website? com. Um, Yeah,
2: nice and simple. And it's mainly about my online course and about a bit about public speaking and all the testimonials and all that. You know, I I will get back to work on it. You know, because it's not just my own tribe, the kidney disease community. Everyone that goes through adversity has the opportunity to grow out of that adversity, you know. But too many people get swallowed. They get stuck in post-traumatic stress and never get out the other side to post-traumatic growth. Character building. Learning the lessons from adversity. And they're there. They're they're massive. And I, I like to think I'm an, uh, an example of that.
1: What advice would you give somebody who spent this morning sitting on the toilet crying?
2: This too shall pass. You know, especially... When I go into schools, uh, you're talking to older groups, they're going through bullying, they're going through stress with exams, they're going through life changes, the hormones. Life is pretty shit for some of them, right? I often bring in a book, and the book looks to be about 100 pages long. Now, the average lifespan for someone today is going to be 100, that's the idea, it's 100 pages. Uh, And I open the book on page 17, and I say, this is where you are, page 17. And some people feel like giving up, and it's not worth it, and I can't do it anymore. But look at you're only on page 17. Look at I flicked through the book. Look at all the lives of, look at all the living you've left to. Look at all the colour, the pictures, the growth, the the travel, the jobs, the careers. And I think it's a great kind of metaphor for life. You can rip out page 17, don't worry about it. You've got another 70, 80 years to live a totally life that you choose. And people forget that, you know. Life is just, just keep going. A lot of people too in schools, I, I know I'm, I'm just, because I was in schools lately and it's kind of in my head that uh, a lot of people feel weird in school. They feel different and they don't realise they're going to go to college and suddenly they're doing graphic design or they're doing artistry or they're doing whatever they want and they're surrounded by 30 other people who feel they're weird and suddenly they're not weird anymore. You've found your tribe. So you're not going to fit in in school all the time because everyone is bunched in together. You have no choice about it but then you go to college or you go to jobs that you want to do and suddenly... You're with your tribe. You found your tribe and life becomes an awful lot better. So I've had that experience going to the transplant games. I found my tribe. I found my friends there. We could talk. We had stuff in common. Life is not the end due to kidney failure. It can live and grow. And that was the, the emphasis for me to, to kind of kick on and be a proactive member of the community. Be, be involved in life again.
1: It's funny you keep saying the word tribe there over and over again because you were with us in Westport when I had the gang down there. Yeah. And it's safe to say, and I've said this over again, and it's not, I'm not just saying it to, to make it sound good, but there wasn't one single dickhead no. out of the 150 people. Yeah. And I've said this over and over again, how was everyone so sound? And somebody said this phrase to me, your vibe attracts your tribe. Lovely. And it's so true. Absolutely, yeah. And even, I think you even said it when we were in Market 57 that day, you said, everyone on this, in this group is lovely. Yeah. And they all had the same mentality. They all, you know, everyone was just on the same level. Yeah. And it, it's so true that your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah. The only, the only uh, just a
2: random thing. The only other place I feel that, right? If you ever climb Crow Patrick, if someone is climbing Crowpatrick, they don't have to be religious, but they're, they're kind of a nice person. They like a challenge. They like to overcome an obstacle. When I climbed Crowpatrick, I used to climb it Christmas Day every year for about 15 years. I had to stop because Santa came the last two years which is again brilliant but he used to climb a Christmas day as a kind of mark of gratitude for, for life and transplants uh, but every person you meet on Crow Patrick you can stop and talk to them every person because you've got something in common you're on the same path you're on the same road how are you getting on oh, I assure you know yourself it's great and you have a chat and that's it felt like that on your your weekend again I was a stranger coming in and Uh, we just talked, you could go up to anyone and say, how are you getting on? Great, and yourself. And you could have a a genuine conversation with strangers again. And again, going back to what we were beginning, you know, this sense of community. It's it's lost and people are searching for it. They don't know what they're missing. That old Irish kind of community, which we engender as our personality, both of us, I think, will engender that in other people. We want to bring people together. And we can step back then and let them... (laughs) Let them reap the benefits.
1: We've been talking about this podcast for months and it has been coming and coming and coming for a long, long time. And I have to tell you, it is a hundred times better than I thought (laughs) it would be. Good. No, I'm enjoying it. You've absolutely blown me away tonight. And I always admired you and I always thought you were a lovely fella. And I always, I, I do often think about you when I'm having a shit day. And I often think about, you know, everything you've done and everything you've been through. And I think to myself... I just see you and you're always so positive and you're always so um, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. There was a great example with the weekend. I met you three or four days before it and we were meeting up and we were planning this and planning that. And even when I brought the gang down a few weeks ago, you're always so positive and nothing's a problem. Yeah. And anytime I'm in a bad mood or I'm thinking I affect this, I think of you you know, and you have, a, you have a huge effect on me and I don't even know you that well. And I have, <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of it, uh, your motivational talks, but, I, you know, I think about you a lot and I admire you so much. And this podcast has been amazing. So thank you very much. Thanks for being honest and thanks for giving me your time. My pleasure.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, The Big News Coming Soon Podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award winning manufacturer of factory built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineers' fees. Please get in touch. Reviewing of our show homes. A brochure, or for more information. Let BRB Homes take the stress out of your build. Check out brbhomes.ie.